Hey guys, welcome to the 831 Podcast with myself, Wesley Merch. I've been thinking about doing a podcast now for a little while. I'm lucky enough to have a, a hugely diverse group of friends who are all on such amazing journeys, doing amazing things that I think it would be great to be able to share their stories and my story with you guys, with anybody who wants to listen. Um, I listen to podcasts all the time regularly and I really enjoy the format and I think that it's a very it's a growing format I now only listen to them when I'm driving or if I'm cleaning etc that's all I really listen to so I understand how much value they have and because of the group of friends that I have and the people I've been lucky enough to meet I think it's a great opportunity for me to share some of their experiences with all of you guys and hopefully you'll enjoy sharing them. I'm also going to be looking for more and more contributors, people to have on. So if you guys have got anybody you think would be good on the podcast, then hit me up, Facebook or email, call me, let me know their names. We'll see if we can put it together and hopefully we can come up with some great stuff. I've had a really diverse life and been involved in many things professional MMA fighter, paraglider pilot, skydiver, base jumper, falconer, adventure athlete and we're just very much getting going. There's so much more that I have planned and so many more things that I want to do that I get to meet these people all the time and I get to hear amazing stories and share them with them but when I reiterate those stories to other people it's hard because it's second hand so to be able to put that into a format like this is awesome and I'm really excited really looking forward to it at the moment I'm still injured and I'm not competing I'm hoping to fight by the end of the year so this has been something that I've been looking forward to doing for a while but I'm a procrastinator and things get in the way and finally I've managed to get pen to paper so to speak and here we are episode one um, episode one it was I've recorded a few episode one was I didn't know which way to go with it who to go out with first etc I've filmed I've recorded a few and they've all been pretty cool but I've been waiting for something that's been you know that I think would capture more people than just a select group so I listen to different podcasts like the cloud-based mayhem with Gavin McClurg's awesome but it's very much a paragliding podcast the best paragliding podcast but it's just a paragliding podcast so you have other podcasts then like I listen to the Sam Harris podcast a fair bit and the Joe Rogan podcast etc they're all superb and that's the format that I want to go down a diverse one with very different guests exploring different things I want to learn from this as much as I want to educate Um, I want to be inspired by this and I want to inspire with this I really want to see how far we can take it and hopefully you'll enjoy hearing it. Sponsors wise, I don't like it when there's lots of sponsors at the beginning of podcasts, but I will. this podcast will always be sponsored by Trojan Nutrition, Trojan Fitness. They've followed me throughout my whole career and they've really helped me as a professional athlete. I honestly can't recommend a better nutrition supplier in Bristol and there is no better gym than... Trojan in Ashton superb um, so hit those guys up make contact honestly that they're really great they've been great for my career and they'll help you as well I will be looking for more and more sponsors because I want to grow this podcast 
I'm sure the sound quality can get better and I've invested some money in audio equipment but I want to progress and I want to push forward and I want to get things better I want to understand the format better so I'm going to have to invest further into it so we will as we go forward look for more sponsors who can help out with time and contributing their time or advice or financially anything that can be contributed we're always going to be welcome for um, so yeah I want this to be very much a group thing and people contributing giving ideas I'm sure as well my format might be not to everyone's liking I'm hoping that I can sound less punch drunk as I go on and I do this more regularly and I'm hoping that I can get the hang of it and really settle in and find a style that really suits what I want to do so fingers crossed you'll grow with me and it'll be part of your weekly podcast um, in the selection that you listen to I'm going to try and get this onto I listen through Podcast Addict on an Android phone so I'm going to try and get this up to Podcast Addict and I'm going to try and get it onto iTunes etc so that everybody can, can have a chance to listen to it there's not really going to be an excuse to not download it hopefully so Podcast 1 I've chosen I just sat down and I've done a podcast with Sasha Dench Sasha is a paraglider pilot slash paramotor pilot but that's a very small part of what she does she's actually more recently been known for her flight of the swans where she followed the migration of the buick swans um she works closely with slimbridge um and she's very much involved with the wildlife sorry the waterfowl trust etc so She's a biologist and she's got lots of a big history in conservation and wildlife, wildlife filming, media, really diverse um, history. And sitting down and talking with her about the Buick Swans, I was really excited when I heard her story a year or so ago and what she was going to do. Like, she's never going to, she's going to follow them on a paramount. This is, this is going to go wrong. And then, of course, everything went well and I managed to sit down and talk to her when she got back which I was really excited about and I was shocked I was blown away it was such a cool story and it had so much more depth than I thought it would it went places I never thought that it would stories that were really exciting as well as really pro conservation etc so yeah I, I was really excited by it and I cut the podcast short just simply because I didn't want to detract away from that side of things, but I could have sat with Sasha for hours and spoke about so many different things. She's a a former free diver and she's worked within the ocean, working with shark nets and she's traveled and she's seen so much. Honestly, just really cool. I'm definitely going to get together with her again. We're going to sit on another podcast in the future because there's so much more that I'd like to talk about with her. But the Buick Swan story was amazing, really cool. I enjoyed listening to her and I'm hoping that you guys are going to enjoy listening to her. I'm hoping that you're going to enjoy the story that we shared. And yeah, like I say, any advice or anything you'd like to give afterwards, constructive, negative, whatever you'd like to give, you're more than welcome. Um, I'm not doing this because I think it's kudos points. I'm doing it because we can share. I can share with people. You can share back with me. So honestly, really open to your feedback. For now though, Uh, Please enjoy Sasha, and I look forward to hearing from you all soon. So, take care, guys.
Okay, so Sasha, thank you very much for joining me and uh, doing the podcast. I uh, I heard your story. You first came about with the with the swans, the following the swans mm-hmm. in their migration. And when I first heard it, I was in like intrigued because it's so many so many different elements to what I'm interested in: flying, birds, etc. So I thought you'd be a great guest. And then I met you, and obviously you come across really well in person as well. So I thought, yeah, this this has to, we have to put this together. And uh, yeah, so I just want to get you on and learn a bit, a little bit more because I literally, what I know about the swan trip is, Sasha had a paramotor and she followed the swans on their migration, and purposely because I, I want to to talk to you and find out more from your perspective rather than reading the newspaper that's been edited. But that's literally all I know. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm just want to find out a bit more really and um, like what got you interested in where it came from and what sparked this like have you always been into to flying with swans or is it like no. you know okay so where do we start from so from birds i had no real interest in birds until about well, seven years ago i started working for the wildfowl and wetland trust um who look at wetlands around the world and in particular birds loads of birds use wetlands so basically they look at water birds that was all reasonably new to me. I have spent my whole life, I used to be a biologist and I spent my whole life mostly in um, in conservation research and conservation marketing. So I've been in PR and storytelling for quite a long time. Anyway, I started at WWT and actually I didn't realize until a couple of weeks in that the w, one of the W's was wildfowl instead of wildlife. When I realized wildfowl was mostly ducks, geese and swans, I was like, oh God, it's like domestic animals. <laughs> <laughs> How can that be exciting? And then I started going out with researchers, uh, looking at birds, and then that kind of opened my eyes to migration. I kind of knew birds migrated, but I had no concept of how how enormous the migrations were and how how uh, varied the kind of landscapes they were crossing were. And um, so I started to get hooked, and then I saw certainly around the UK some of the really big spectacles where birds fly in, like you might get 25 or 30,000 coming into roost at the one time. And it's, it's completely mind blowing. It's up there with free diving with sharks, which I've done in the past, and I thought that was like the yeah. the top. Um, so birds can be really spectacular, and um, but but I'm not like a tree hugger kind of uh, when it comes to wildlife. I'm interested in the conflicts, I suppose, between animals and particularly problems that we can solve. So that's what drives me in terms of conservation. And the Buick Swan. Um, is a bird that's in rapid decline and all the researchers kind of got together and there was a particular meeting where they were saying see they do a huge migration we haven't talked about that yet where they where they come from um, but yeah all the countries the birds fly across had all got together and said right the population is dropping now so rapidly we need an emergency action plan that was I think in 2012 in the years since then they tried various things to put all those things into place and it just wasn't working so they got more people together um, and I was brought in the room and yeah that's so where it started. You were just brought in the room as in just to discuss it and go through it you were there was no there was no plan at that point that it, this is someone who could put into action what you did finally put into no, action? Not, not me specifically. So research, I'm not in the research team at WWT. I was I'm head of media production, but I had made a name for myself in um, lateral thinking and approaching stuff a bit differently. Um, 
so that's one of the reasons I, w I was brought in. So they, all the researchers did have an action plan, but there's a difference between researching and finding out kind of what the problem is and then knowing how to do it. And the how to do it largely involves people. So some of the big things were a third of the birds are getting shot. Like we don't know exactly where that happened or a third of the birds living today have got shot in their body. So a lot of the birds get shot. That's not including the ones that actually die from it. Um, so somewhere along the fly where birds are being shot, how do we find out where and then how do we then find out how whether we can convince them to, to stop for whatever reason, for whatever reason they're hunting. Um, collision with power lines is another issue. We know it's probably the biggest killer uh, everywhere along the flyway, but unless ordinary people know um, to look out for birds, to let power companies know, there's no kind of demand for those, for change, for diverters yeah, to be stuck sure. on lines, for them to be buried. All that kind of stuff. So largely, we need people on board. Um, wind turbines are a potential problem in a few in a few areas, um, but also just the removal of wetlands. So wetlands are disappearing so quickly because they're really they tend to be um, very fertile area, very easy to fill in, easy to turn into farmland. Um, the Dutch are brilliant at that. They have taught everybody across the world how to do that now. Um, and it also makes good flat, sort of cheap land to reclaim. So they're being lost really quickly. And for these birds on migration, uh, the, the most important thing for them, they can do quite big distances, but they can only rely on the fuel they've got in their, in their bum, basically. That's where they store their fat. Yeah. So they can go a certain distance, but then they need to be able to stop and rest on a wetland, on a big lake somewhere, um, and rest and then feed before they do the next bit of the migration. And as those wetlands have disappeared um, over the last few decades, it's become really fast across Western Europe. Um, there's less and less of those, so birds will turn up and the wetland's not there anymore. They need to now spend more time finding places. The other thing that's changed is that since the mid-70s, the birds haven't been able to feed in wetlands anymore. So there's not enough. We've kind of manicured a lot of the wet areas, so we've gotten rid of the, a lot of the water plants around the edges of some of the wetlands they still use. So there just isn't enough food, so they're having to feed on agricultural land. So they use a lot more energy on migration because they can't turn up in a wetland, sleep for a couple of days yeah, sure. and feed. They have to stop, sleep, and then find where the feed is, find stubble fields, find old potatoes, that kind of thing. So there's a lot more energy required to um, to do things. But for that, you then need to get, if you want to save the species, we need, then need to be speaking to farmers and make them excited about yeah. birds coming to feed on their, on their land. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of different... Basically, the big problem was people and how do we engage them. And as I do media production and marketing um, of conservation issues, they've kind of brought me along and were like, can you help us think about this a bit differently? So then, so they just wanted a solution. That no, you, you, did you have the solution already in your head or they no, just wanted a solution no. so you brainstormed? It was just help more people in the organisation. So I was one of them, there were others as well. But like this, this is the problem. How, how can we solve it? We need to do something quite quickly. It's also the kind of the, the logo of WWT, the species, and we've been researching it for 50 years, so it's also kind of embarrassing to think that yeah. a bird like that is, um, is also kind of disappearing and we're failing to, to, to sort it out. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Wow. So then you came together yeah. and uh, you were just all in a, in a room brainstorming and then who came up with the idea or you presented the idea that you went with in the end? I didn't at the time. So what I, what I listened to, I, I read the action plan. So there's a document which is this kind of scientific action plan. And I don't know if you have ever read one, but they're 
reasonably boring. In fact, they're not reasonably boring, they're really boring documents. So ahead of every country, all the threats, what should probably be done. Um, but it's very dry and very cautious and it's really hard reading. Um, so that was one thing. And then you know, there was all sorts of formal plans for writing letters to those different people, to the hunters and to the farmers, bringing them into meetings to tell them about the problem for the swans. Um, which is great in theory, but I just thought it was way too boring and it wasn't going to work and it wasn't going to work fast enough. Writing a letter to say, we think you're part of the problem, can you please come and hear about it? Yeah. It just is not, it's not very, it's not very attractive, the proposition yeah. to a busy hunter, farmer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it sounded very dry. And to be honest, I just sat there the whole time looking at the map and the map for me was like, oh my God, I, if you, if you look at the kind of routes that we have been satellite tracking the, the birds for some time now, and I looked at the route and thought, my God, they kind of like, there's certainly the autumn migration, they're escaping the Arctic winter, the landscape up in the Arctic where they come from, up in Northern Russia, that's where they breed. Um, the countries that they flew across are all countries, well, mostly countries that I had never been to. And I just kind of thought, yeah, wow, it, mm, that's amazing that they have to traverse that many different, uh, that many different countries, different cultures. Um, it's a really exciting journey and that surely it's somewhere in that with there's a, an exciting story that's gonna suck people in so somehow let's use the journey and I did at the time think can we how can we virtually um, let people experience what that's like what is it like in the Arctic when the Arctic winter comes and they have to migrate with their young across the tundra which is just mad colors and swirls and stuff um, all the way across well they, they actually I think touch about 17 different countries in total I didn't cross all of those how far how far the 17 countries how far is the actual migration in distance um if you draw a straight line it's three and a half thousand miles but that's a bit artificial because they they have they're going between wetlands all the way along so yeah, it's a sure. big jagged kind of loop so when I looked at them if you link together all the main wetland sites the d distance that I had to do was 7,000 kilometers wow seven kilometers yeah and they're doing that just as a migration so. they do it they do it twice a year and now having watched very carefully what the birds are doing on occasions they will go to a place and then the weather is really bad goes awful climate change is definitely making the weather more varied so sometimes they've had gone to a site and had to turn around and go back again um, and they've had to, to do this a few times and now they, they they land in a place they've got to feed up for a week or so and to get food every day they're flying out to fields coming back again so constantly searching so um, yeah, they do a lot more than, than that. Crazy. And, uh, and they do it with, on this migration from the Arctic, they're doing it with their young in tow. Some of them, they can have up to seven young, a, a couple. So they've got a, they've got a whole Crazy. seven babies around. To Just take that. for granted that like you see, you see these swans, it might be at Slimbridge or something, and you go and see them and you're, oh yeah, they migrate and it gets thrown out like a flipping coin, but 7,000k just to 7,000 miles did you say no 7,000 kilometers 7,000 yeah. kilometers yeah just to just as part of your life that's just part of your day like just like just like a commute that's that's what we like were born a, like to do like a commute but a commute where you're constantly being kind of chased by the by the winter so um not certainly on this autumn migration they might be stopped in a place um but they get a massive cold snap and the area that they've been resting in is suddenly frozen so they they might not have got enough energy yet to carry on but they haven't got a choice they've got to move on because they can't they can't stay if the water is icing over. So they're also juggling. Like they haven't got GPS or weather forecast. So how the how the heck they they manage all that? I don't know. Um, but some make bad decisions every year. So we lose yeah. about one in five every migration. Wow. So yeah, it's a they they have a challenging task, but they've been doing it for 
been yeah, yeah, forever, right? So yeah, yeah. It's cra- like crazy. Just <laughs> that's part of your evolution. Is that you? You've been selected. You are going to be one of the one of the species that has to fly across the planet and every year and back again. Like, I shit a card, <laughs> set a card for <laughs> you doubt. Like that's. Uh, like, and then you see these other ducks who can just stay here every single year, like a mm-hmm. mallard. Yeah, you can just go in the parks and just be here all year round. But you have to, yeah, crazy. That's a crazy journey. So you, uh, you find out all the research, and then you, you're thinking it would be good to show people what these people, what they have to go through, etc. Yes. So I kept saying that, and the difference, I suppose, between me then and a researcher. So I hadn't been long at WWT, and the researchers, some of them have been there for 25 years, and they know ducks, geese, and swans inside out. So they wouldn't have recognised that how many people don't don't get that this migration and that it's potentially an exciting story still to people so anyway i just had in my mind somehow that that's where that's where the power is in their story and i went away and i just thought through it um you know if i would sleep on it that's how kind of ideas start to start to form and then actually it was um speaking to some contacts some mother paramotorists in eastern europe uh, via Facebook and I flipped down through their Facebook feed and one of them in particular his Facebook feed well that's not completely different um, his Facebook feed was paramotoring hunting farming hunting farming paramotoring and I started to go oh actually paramotoring is kind of interesting still to a lot of different people in lots of different ways um, and then I thought God, well, you know the latest technology and wings and everything else we're going quite a lot faster than we were certainly when I, when I first started and um, I just slowly started to put two and two together and it, it still seemed that kind of ridiculous the distance I knew was totally ridiculous yeah. um, but at least it was like oh there's certainly a level of interest there so could we somehow use the kind of paramotoring and then I also I mostly fly on my own in the UK certainly for work I do photography and it's much easier to be on my own and what I notice pretty much everywhere is that whether you, everywhere I land, whether it's by farmers or um, posh mums up at Tetbury, no matter where I land, certainly as soon as I take my helmet off, um, people ask the questions of uh, where have you come from, um, isn't it dangerous up there, and they generally try and want to help you in some yeah. way. And I thought well, that's all the same questions you want people to be asking about the swans. So. Yeah. Uh, and the other, I mean, benefit in this case but not otherwise is that you are uh, susceptible to a lot of the same threats the swans have on migration so flying in autumn you know when the weather is turbulent and varied um, can be quite stressful power lines are another thing you've got to look out for so there's lots of parallels between what paramotorists has to put up with uh, and what the swans have to put up with so the idea sort of started there and at first it seemed like a daft idea but I couldn't help but like work away at it in the back of my head and then I got to the point where I had to write it down onto two pages and I asked a few paramotorists and I was pretty much ignored by all of them it was like dismissed as a ridiculous idea and well, no, like just literally just that no research I haven't looked into it they're just like you've mentioned they're like no that, that sounds yeah didn't even really want to talk about it. I think they kind of almost almost didn't even want to answer because how ridiculous was that like no one flies cross-country all the way from out of Russia yeah. like it's 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 it is completely ludicrous uh and so I eventually asked 
um, I thought, God, who in the world of flying? I need to speak to somebody whose who's, uh, version of normal is very different to, yeah. to those that will take off from a field and fly around for half an hour and come in and land again. So who's at the other end of the spectrum to that? And um, so I had heard of a guy called Richard Meredith Hardy from watching videos online. And he had he used to paramotor once upon a time, but has done long microlight expeditions down to, um, I think it was the first to fly to Australia and South Africa from, from Britain. And yeah, he's been involved in lots of expeditions. And he was the first paramotorist to fly across the channel, I think, in the 80s, the first guy to do it. Embarrassing that no woman has done it. <laughs> um, but um, so I didn't know him from a bar of soap, but I drafted him an email to say, I've had this idea there's a really good reason behind it everyone's kind of dismissing it but this is what I intend to do am I missing something is it actually possible I realize it's difficult but is it possible and I just got an email back saying call me and I was like oh hell he's either going to tell me uh, he's also the chairman of the Microlight Fe International Microlight Federation anyway I thought he was I thought he was going to tell me I was being ridiculous and kind of putting myself at risk and everything else if I called him and we had a half an hour chat, which he laughed a lot, which was great, asked me lots of lots of kind of questions of all kinds and then hung up and then half an hour later there was an email in which he'd sent me the contact details of everybody across Europe that he thought would be useful, um, some other points about it and he also copied in everybody along the flyway. Um, wow. <laughs> so it was almost like then the cat was out of the bag. So my original email was at the bottom so they knew exactly what I was doing yeah, and why I was going to sure. do it. And I was like, okay, right, that's a bit scary. Is that the cat out of the bag? Um, but at least having his kind of t tick of, you know, sort of tick of approval um, gave me a little bit more confidence. Yeah, so. It made you think that, yeah, actually this is possible. Rather than it just being like an idea that I've dreamt up in bed, yes. actually this could work, this could be possible. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and... And there would be people if he thought that other people would be interested in, in helping out. So I'd emailed a, I then obviously emailed a few more of those people with some more details, and I kind of realised the complexities of flying a paramotor. So across borders, lots of countries had no protocol for that, so there wasn't a, a rule of how you do it. Um, and in every country, there's different regulations for paramotoring on whether you need to be a registered aircraft with a number on you or you definitely need to not be an aircraft with a registered number on you, what type of radio you need, it kind of sits between regulated and non-regulated flights. So it was very, it was, surely it was, gonna, it was gonna be complicated, but at that point I realized with all the different languages across the borders, with different flight regulations, um, with varied weather, it was gonna rely on having lots of people interested in helping out. So I kind of, took that approach from the very beginning of having as many people, giving as many people as possible an opportunity to be a part of it and um, yeah, help with the with the logistics. So that's kind of, yeah, that's that's sort of where it uh, where it started from. I still then had the, the, the charity I work for had didn't know anything at all about it at this point. Um, so that's when I, I had to start putting it out and, for, you know, conservation charities tend to be quite conservative on, yeah. in some ways and now you have to go and pitch them yeah listen I'm, I've had this idea I want to fly a paraglider Which with a like motor on the back <laughs> and I want to follow these swans path like how does how does, how does a conversation like that go down you know? well, well I had it I had it written down I was a bit of a chicken so I sent out the document the first um, but there was one part of the story which made it um, it's probably the reason why this happened and it happened with within the Wildfire Wetland Trust and might not have happened with another organisation that um, 
We were founded by Sir Peter Scott, who's son of Scott of the Antarctic, mm-hmm. and he was definitely a maverick in the world of conservation. You know, I think uh, David Attenborough calls him the the patron saint of conservation, um, and he definitely he he definitely uh, looked did, did a lot of expeditions. He didn't know something, so he'd try something, had a kind of mad idea, would try something out, and will often then go and um, go and see. So he led expeditions. He had one of the first wildlife television programs and yeah, certainly took an unusual approach to lots of things. Um, and for example, he was the first to realize with the Burex one that you could identify each of them by their bill pattern, the pattern on their, on their bills. Okay. So he'd started painting individuals in the 50s, I think, and giving them each names. And so, so they're individually identif- identifiable by, by their face. Yeah, so you don't have to see a leg ring or anything. It is quite crazy. So we've named about ten thousand birds. How how distinguishable are they? So like to the naked eye, or it would take like pictures next to each other to say this is this is. Like uh, to the to the naked eye, if you know what you're looking for. So yeah. um, we've we've had since since he realised this. There's been a a swan researcher at WWT every year who will watch the birds come in. They'll paint any new birds and. So Julia Newth is our current uh, main swan researcher and she can just look at individuals on a lake and she will note when they're coming in and out in the evening who's the dominant birds, which families are which. And yeah, she'll know about 400 birds by That's memory. Amazing. I don't uh, know if 400 people by memory, but <laughs> 400, just, I didn't even know, so that's something I didn't even know, that these, these things are identifiable by just their by their face. That's Yeah, that's great. That, which also, surely if people know that, that makes it yes. like... Especially when you know by face, then you can say, well, that's Bob. Yeah, like, yeah. you can anthropomorphise with them a lot easier in the fact that this is how we recognise each other by face. So now you've got an animal that you can literally look at their face and go, wow, that's crazy, I didn't even know that. Yes, so he, he discovered that. Um, he also so he started that and realised at that point, um, he did, they, we still didn't know where they went. We knew that they went generally um, in, the, in the summertime. We knew they left the UK, they headed towards Europe didn't really know the route they took so that was obviously before kind of tagging technology we have now he had a mad idea that he would catch a load of swans dye their bums yellow send them off on migration and wait for various angry ornithologists around across the flyway <laughs> to write letters to different organizations to say what on earth is happening who's dying these swans yellow and that's how he originally tracked them all the way back to to russia um, so he definitely you can he definitely took a maverick approach. He also um, uh, learnt to glide um, up at the gliding club near in Nimsfield to um, just to get a better idea of what well, he liked competing at gliding, but the idea of flight and to get inside the bird's head. So he took kind of alternative approaches to a lot of things, and so I had I had him as a bit of a, a bit of a backup. And um, so when I wrote the first the first couple of pages, I sent it to just the swan researchers, the original ones who'd presented the problems. And um, the, the response I was getting back from them was, well, it's completely utterly bonkers, but it's very Peter Scott, let's have a coffee. And that wasn't what I was expecting. I was kind of expecting to be shot down in flames, but that just happened again and again and again. Mm-hmm. And so internally, people were like, oh, this could actually be really interesting. How possible is it, Sasha? And I was never quite sure. Yeah. <laughs> Always was super positive, like yeah, no. It's, it's, well, it'll be difficult, but um, yeah. we got this. We got this. <laughs> yeah. And so Peter Scott's name bought you. You feel that that bought you basically a lot more meetings and stuff, having his name on board, or 
Um, well, because he founded our organisation, so yeah. he he was the founder, and he's obviously a um, so that, that's kind of a part of the part of the culture that you kind of can take a bit of a maverick idea um, if it looks like you know your best chance of working, and that was the general feeling was that, that yes, yeah. you know, it is a bit radical, but maybe we need a bit more of that. Yeah. Um, at the moment and that's what the foundation is based on like yeah. someone who's radical so yes. we should be a bit radical as well yes. yeah so. <laughs> yes this is just a modern version of the yeah. dying the swan runs yellow we're still going to follow them we're just going to try and follow them uh really and so then obviously we work in partnership with countries all along the flyway so the next step had to be um to get them on board and that's where i thought there's a good chance i was going to lot of people would not understand that was way you know it was like way too much of a of a jolly and so yeah contacted people along the flyway and we got various questions but the overpowering response was yeah bonkers but let's give it a try yeah. um another thing that was really important for all of them because there are different problems for the swans in every in every country a big problem was why would estonia do their bit if the other country next door wasn't going to do their bit yeah, sure. so how do you make swans a priority amongst those, all those countries so they could see the benefit of kind of creating a bit of a mexican wave of um of enthusiasm by doing something physical and all at the same time so yeah we ended up with every country on board and then uh yeah obviously there were tons of logistical things i wasn't really dealing with at that point yet yeah. and i ended up with um uh, three thousand pounds. I was basically given three thousand pounds to go up to Northern Russia and find out if it was even if I had a, the vaguest chance of crossing the tundra. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was the next. Uh, that was the next big challenge. But just getting people on board to start with was the was the first big lot. Yeah, I like. I'm just filled with questions. Like now, through like there's so many different junctures now that I didn't that I didn't <laughs> foresee when we first started speaking like when you first got into paramotoring or paragliding did you paraglide first did you break into paramotoring or did you just was this you you'd sort of done a little bit but this was really your big main your first ever real paramotoring experience was doing this or had you been a paramotor enthusiast and then that's what tied the two together or um Okay, so previous to coming to the UK, which was seven and a half years ago now, I had been very much a water water baby. I used to cave dive, scuba dive. I competed at free diving for Australia and and the UK, and my whole life was in the water. My yeah. passions outside, I used to run a dive, a volunteer dive group. Um, so I had all been about the water, and I had, I was actually, I'd become very petrified of, um, of flight um, because of a bad flight in Panama years beforehand where we're in a small plane we got stuck in a thunderstorm the pilot couldn't find this tiny little airstrip on an island above the San Blas Islands there's 3,000 little islands off the coast and one of them had an airstrip we needed to find and our pilot had decided he could handle it and it was 40 terrifying minutes of being thrown around in this little plane while he kept diving down through the clouds trying to find it and uh, we all thought we were going to dive only six of us in the plane and the pilot was white and uh, <laughs> yeah um, I basically kind of we, we all thought that was it one girl was reading from her prayer book and um, he did eventually land the plane and he got out and lay flat with his arms out and never said another word and it never stopped me then getting on a plane but any bit of 
turbulence so takeoff and landing were fairly terrifying so for someone you've done quite a few things that have you know reasonably high levels of risk like cave diving and things beforehand in the situation in any sort of turbulence in a plane I would find myself gripping like turning to the random stranger next to me uncontrollably and gripping their arm and going oh, I'm really petrified please speak to me please speak to me <laughs> complete gibbering wreck and I didn't recognize myself but I couldn't I couldn't stop it Again, we'd be like we'd hit a ton of turbulence in the sky, and I, I'd, I'd have the same thing again. And um, I realised that I just I'd, I'd try and figure out a way of getting out of it. And I realised I just didn't understand air, and maybe the my, the scientific brain in me, if I could understand air, would um, I could I could solve this. Um, so I didn't really have any interest in learning to fly. I hadn't really been and hadn't really appealed to me, but I felt I needed to do something to get my head around air so I actually tried gliding with a sailplane kind of gliding being towed up and things and I just found it was too much it was like the most extreme form of um, turbulence for the for a start with the the tow um, the g-forces on the toe and then the poppers that that's released and then you instantly have to look for a look for a, a thermal so you're instantly looking for a turbulence and there was way too much information for me and then the day that one of the instructors said oh yeah I said how do you put it away and he's like oh well you pull this pin and the wings come off and I was like the control freak and he just <laughs> said no that's too much and so I looked at a paraglider and I thought well that's you know it's simple enough for craft you can I can check every line myself I can check all the cells and I kind of understand I can sort of understand how that flies and you can feel the air so if I'm going to get comfortable with air movement that's that's maybe the way to go and so I started paragliding first bit was in Australia um, my boyfriend was flying at the time and I have to say I didn't enjoy it at all first couple of years were just like I just suffered it the first oh, yeah absolutely suffered it I I <laughs> just was not hmm, first I insisted on having eight tandems before I would fly on my own we didn't, weren't given any ground handling practice at all on um, the course that I did it was basically straight up it was a tandem flight and then a little bit and then off and everybody, the other four people on the course did it I think second flight was solo flight so what, like top to bottoms or top to bottoms but yeah. seven minute top to bottoms in Australia so you wow. couldn't see the landing fields from where you were taken off from it was, Unless it, you're in bright, it was in bright around in bright yeah yes um, so uh, yeah and I uh, I looked at it and I was like but no but I I know I've got you on the radio, but radios break. And if you tell me do X, I don't understand enough of the language. If I'm in a panic, I'm not going to understand the instructions. So I think I, I insisted on having eight tandems before I would go on my own. And the first few flights, I did not get into the harness, and I would not look at the I would not look at the wing. I just was too. The whole thing was just I was just having complete sensory overload. I just stuck myself in my most horrific situation and bright is never really unless you go up really early in the morning it's always a bit thermic there's yeah. areas of quite big trees and then and then nothing and you know big trees and power lines as I remember near the near the near the landing field way too much information for me I just was not functioning in the air so I knew I couldn't control it at all um so yeah two years I suffered it and then I started to I just started to enjoy it here I was already already back in the UK I went out to Dune de Pilla and that was kind of mm, nice then I saw someone in a field paramotoring and I was like, that's taking this to a whole new level for me yeah. because I like going places and not being beholden to thermals and things felt um, felt like a great idea. So that's when I started paramotoring and that was maybe five years five years ago. I, okay, so that, so four, four, four years, years or so before you are 
before, before, the before this before yeah. this came up. Yeah, so like, I I understand when I first started paragliding, I was never interested in paragliding. I uh, I was a skydiver, and my friend like see, I would never do that in a million years. <laughs> which which is super safe, like really safe compared to paragliding. Uh, but Tim Carr is uh, who's obviously a paramotorist and paraglider. We've been friends for like sixteen years, really good friends. Oh, we uh, we worked together security in nightclubs, and we used to be bailiffs moving gypsies together. We like we worked together. We're really close friends. And he, uh, I remember when he first started paragliding, he's like, "You should come on, come try with me." I was like, hey, "Shit, mate, that's like." You're flying around, floating about. That is rubbish. I jump out of planes and spin and stuff. Like, well, he's like, no, it's really good. Like, no, it's shit. So this went on for like eight years. Like, literally, he was trying to get me to paraglide for eight years. I was like, no, it's rubbish. And then uh, just just one day, he's like, oh, I'm going out to Westbury. Why don't you come out? It's really nice there. You can chill on the hill. I'm going to fly. You can talk to people. I was like, yeah, okay. So I came out and I ground handled his wing. I was like, Wow, this is yeah, it's a bit yeah, more power is, and yeah, excitement is, in that. Wow, yeah. like and uh, went home that night and bought everything on eBay. Everything, <laughs> and he's like, "What the fuck have you done? Like, what? That's not how you start paragliding." I was like, "I've got it all. I'm good to go." He's like, "No, that's not it. That's not how you do it." And then, uh, so he he sort of taught me how to paraglide. My first flights, I didn't enjoy at all like I have video and I used to have a camera on the side of my helmet and you can see my eyes like blinking and squinting every turbulent bit and it's not like I was scared I just wasn't enjoying myself you know I wasn't taking off thinking this is amazing but then I'd not enjoy it all the way to the bottom and as soon as I landed I was like yeah, shit I want to not enjoy that again like, yeah. let's, let's go and not enjoy that again you know and then I would do it again and of course I'd see other people staying up and I'm going to the bottom I was like how are they staying up so then the competitive streak in me was like, I want to I wanna do that, what they're doing, and I want to not enjoy this for longer, you know? And that was it. I just, uh, the more I didn't, the more I couldn't do it, it didn't matter how much I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. I couldn't do it, so I wanted to be better at it, you know? So, yeah, I get the whole not enjoying it kind of thing, you know? And working working through it. Yeah. And, yeah. In the beginning, it's definitely more fun in, in retrospect. Yeah, definitely. That, like, that personal challenge, you're, you're getting better at something, but you're overcoming a... I'll say a fear. It's not. I never really felt scared, but it's a, f- a fear. You know, I wasn't enjoying it because I guess mentally it's a fear of you're you're leaving the ground, you know, and not really feeling in control. I guess you're just yeah. Initially, and I think and you, uh, you never get back to that same. F- so in those first flights, everything is there is just loads of information going in, and yeah. I don't think you ever remember any of that in enough detail because everything is firing yeah, at you the don't, same you time. can't process any of it I can't as soon as says to me what, what did it feel like now I couldn't tell you now I could tell you exactly what a thermal feels like inside out back to yeah. front left I couldn't tell you now what it felt like when my wing first left the ground I just can't remember that so much was going on that yeah it just it, I could have just been on autopilot being radio controlled to the ground you know mm-hmm. just yeah so I, I get what you mean so yeah. then from there you saw power motoring and you thought that looks Yes, so, yes, I was still I was still doing a bit of paragliding on the side, but the paramotoring, apart from being a way of actually going from A to B, which I like the idea of, like actually where specifically where I wanted to go, not where the wind was going to take me, um, I realised that that was a great way of doing aerial photography and filming for work. So I run a media production team at the charity I work for, and uh, I just kind of looked at it and thought, really, in the, in the back of my car, I can put a flying machine that means I can take off from pretty much anywhere around the country and that's the bit that really appeals I thought I'm going to get tons of use out of it but I need to be comfortable to fly on my own and to be honest I was again like I 
was probably two years of paramoaching before I first took off uh, on my own. I went to four different instructors before I found one who I just who had the right approach for for me for learning to paramotor and uh, yeah, the whole spinning motor petrol on your back yeah. while you're hanging off a bit of fabric with loads of really thin lines. It all just seemed really really ridiculously risky yeah. and um so you're naturally magic. like a cautious you're naturally a cautious person but you're adventurous yes would you say, that's, say that yeah yep i had no so the whole idea of bungee where somebody else has tested the rope and measured everything and you just yeah. kind of go and bet on them and hook up to it and jump that petrifies the crap out of me this, i just have no interest whatsoever in doing that uh it had to be a long time before i'd kind of learn enough about bungee to know to be able to check that all for myself yeah, i'm like the opposite <laughs> like my base jumping and stuff i uh i get to a point where i'm like it's just been okay i packed this and when i first started i was like i've packed this but somebody else oversaw it and what if it doesn't open and what if another i just get to a point where i'm like oh fuck it and then i just <laughs> then i'm just gonna do it you know once i get once i've got past that process and what can go this could go wrong and you know i'm stood i'm still on the bridge i'm about to jump and I'm like, this could this could happen or did i pack this right and then all of a sudden i'd be like Ah, fuck it. We'll see what happens. I just, <laughs> I'm just going to go for it, you know. So yeah. So I, I think I'd learnt from then. So I had already lost quite a few friends in free diving and in cave diving, and quite a few of them were to kit failure. So that I think I was really, I am really sensitive to, and I'm always keen to make sure that if the kit is going to fail, that it's not, and if I died, for example, that it's not going to be, my, it's, gonna, it's not going to be somebody else's fault, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, you know, on this trip, for example, crossing the, crossing the channel, I, I was not happy to say, well, what are the chances of the engine failing? I wanted to make sure that it, the engine may or may not fail. That was a kind of given so that it wasn't the mechanic on the trip's kind of problem, that it was my responsibility to make sure I had all the stuff on me that was... Um, um, so that if I did hit the water, I would just assume that as a possibility, I knew I had the stuff with me to make sure I didn't die crossing yeah. it. So, you know, I, I would seem really cautious, but once you kind of have gone through all that process, then you can go other go other places. And with paramotoring, so some people go and they learn in four days, don't they? And for me, I just went, this is not, I'm not going to learn in four days and then be confident to go and fly on my own. So I went to somebody who, and basically just said, you know, there's one thing telling me, do this, don't do this. I won't remember that. I want to know every single accident you've ever heard of, exactly what happened, so that I've got like, that picture is burned into and my brain. Apprenticeship almost in, yeah. in yeah. yeah. So I, I know the worst that can happen, like how many people have lost their kind of fingers and things, and how exactly <laughs> did that happen? Because I might be in a remote area, certainly for work, I'm going to quite remote areas. I really need to not stick my hand through a propeller yeah. when I'm on my own. So give me, like, tell me the, the worst stuff. And um, yeah, and then I, back here, I kind of kept thinking I must be able to fly on my own and I kept on flying to different people to fly with different people. And yeah, for the first two years, I think, maybe the first year and a half, before every flight, I needed to go to the toilet. I, I was <laughs> like, no matter how my brain was saying, it's fine. So I made sure I had a portaloo. I need a big enough van to have a portaloo in the back because that was a given. And I kept, I'd go to myself, like, why am I doing this? And I thought, the brain was saying, well, obvious, you know, it's beautiful up there. You're going to have great views, great photographs. Um, you just have to get off the ground. And so that was a good year and a half. But I kind of had accepted by that time, that's how I work. I need to kind of work up to these things quite slowly. And you find it less intimidating than, than like, fixed wing gliders? Yes. But when I signed the fixed wing with the fixed wing glider, I 
that was my first kind of forays into flying and so I was still off I was the back still, of that bad experience as yeah well, I was still yeah. petrified of any kind of turbulence so I'd kind of and but I what I still like what I love about the wing is that it kind of you can see what it does like collapses and things collapses reopen that doesn't happen in a lot of other aircraft yeah. it just and you hang underneath it like a pendulum so that all makes complete sense to me whereas you know in gliders there is I don't understand the mechanical stresses on wings yeah. so I don't it's just a whole other area that I can't control and yeah, you know, fair sure. enough to have complete faith in somebody else but maybe now I'd like to go back I'm about to go back oh, yeah. and start the, start gliding again because it, it doesn't interest me in the slightest and f through nothing other than ignorance it doesn't interest me but I just feel like I love paragliding but I feel like I'd be so detached being locked in I, a cockpit I completely agree not, being out of a cockpit is is fabulous yeah and when I'm when I'm sat there and I'm in my harness and I'm in the thermal and I feel the shape of it in my glider and I feel the and that's why I haven't gone over to a, a, a visored helmet as well because I like to feel the the wind on my face I feel mm -hmm. like I can feel a thermals coming sometimes just you by on my, it. Yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> and so I think the detached side of it really and it might be people say oh it's so much better you get so much more feeling of the air you get this but you're you might get a more feeling of the air but you're not in the air you're not part in, of in it, what in a know. glider in, in a, a glider yeah. in a fixed wing glider it's, yeah. a, it's a different thing you can go a long way i mean 60 to 1 glide ratio yeah. on, the, on new kind of gliders so that's pretty special and some of them have got a motor that will pop out a propeller so that you can you know sort yourself out if you are going to come down so there's there are it's much more like a plane yeah it is a very very different thing and for me you know for photography and for kind of you know really feeling like, you know that if i'm going out playing with the paramotor I like to kind of, you know, play play with the wing. Occasionally, it's sort of closest to the ground, maybe. Um, but there's there's nothing. You just cannot have anything like that when you're enclosed yeah. in a in a cockpit. And that was part of the magic of this trip was doing it. A lot of people said to me, "Why don't you do fly this one? Why don't you do this migration route in a in a helicopter?" I was like, "Well, but that was already that was the expense was quite a lot higher than yeah. I was originally thinking we were budgeting for." Um, but it was completely defeating the purpose of the whole expedition and I struggle to explain it to people but firstly what we haven't said is that yeah, the first sort of thousand kilometers of this expedition there are no roads so there's no way that you can have a ground crew of any kind and there's no fields or anything it's it's permafrost and tundra so there's no agriculture up there there's no big flat fields to land in so even landing and taking off with the aircraft with wheels you're really limited to where you can go so you're flying you're flying from Russia yeah. back Northern to the Arctic, UK. Russia back to the UK. That's yeah. the autumn migration. The birds, they're all kind of yeah, escaping from this Arctic winter that, that comes on quite fast. Um, but yeah, the other, the other point of it was that I wanted to, up in those remote areas, we needed to talk to people that are likely to be shooting swans. And the, um, I wanted to be able to tell the story of what the swan's journey is like where they are but where they're you know where they're not as well so on other other parts of the journey because i just kind of knew people would be fascinated by that and to have had any chance of really experiencing that it needed to be exposed the way that the swans are i needed to be cold yeah uh, i needed to be you know dodging around the kind of the, the squalls and the storms and the snow and things like that you're not going to get a lot of uh Apathy and sympathy from people if, if they I land in a helicopter. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and then land if you're the telling the story, you know, it's not going to be. Oh yes, yeah, so I followed them in a helicopter. I was eating sandwiches, and they were. Yeah, it's not <laughs> the same thing as as being it's in not. a paramotor. No, it's not. It's not. And if you definitely want the the, the sympathy as well, you need to kind of look dishevelled and snotty <laughs> and frozen and and pathetic and yeah. 
that's what you uh, that's what definitely the picture I presented in a lot of areas because it did it was so up along the north coast the only people that live up there are the nomadic reindeer breeders so I was having to kind of I really wanted to go and stop and land with them and ask them about swans and their approach to them and do they know the different species because there are three different types of white swan um, and if they are shooting them ask them why and how and if they could be convinced to stop and um, the only way you could do that really and we needed to not come in like the powerful rich overseas conservation organization yeah. which you would appear if you land in a helicopter I needed to land and be kind of a bit pathetic so the power balance where where they basically are everything I kind of need water and whatever else um, from them it just means you have a much more open conversation I think where they where the, the power balance is, is set like that rather than a big NGO coming and pointing fingers at people yeah and uh, yeah it worked yeah so you were you're on your own you're just doing so you've got a support crew following you you've got so I wasn't on my own because well, once it started to kind of grow and there was a big uh, NGO behind it for all sorts of reasons, I I couldn't. I was on my own at some point to the expedition, but not covering, not crossing Russia. Firstly, the permissions. So the area that I needed to cross across Russia, uh, five of their border regions. And for anybody that's had anything to do with the Russian FSB, who are the current KGB, yeah. current version of that, and um, I was basically dealing. I had to convince them, the various uh, border police, the aviation authorities that I should be allowed to fly across five of their border regions, which they police heavily, you need separate permits just to go there. Um, and you're going to pass this in the air? You're in the air, with cameras, because I had I wanted to film it all, and I couldn't tell them exactly when I was going to fly, or you know what days it was going to be, or exactly how fast, or anything else. I couldn't basically tell them any of that, because of their type of expedition. So it did look like a ridiculous ask at the beginning. I completely accept that. Um, so yeah, I had to um, had to put a, a lot of work into into convincing them to um, to let me do that. And a big part of that was um, just making making friends. Um, and all across Russia, needed a, a Russian with me. He wasn't there all the time. His father died during the trip, so he had to go back to Moscow, which was fairly traumatic. Um, but we needed him to be able to talk to air traffic control. So in the end, I didn't actually get a permission to fly across these border regions. Um, but we were right down to the line, and it was like, well, how are we going to get this permission? And it, it became obvious. The problem was that there wasn't really a way of giving such a permission um, because nobody has ever tried to float yeah. <laughs> across that. Um, and there are areas where they've got military installations of various kinds. So in the end, w what we ended up with was, obviously I said um, Alexander Bogdanov um, was flying with us, so he could obviously speak Russian with air traffic control. I'd learned enough basic Russian to get by, but not enough to have a sensible conversation with air traffic control in an emergency. Um, we had somebody in uh, Moscow who was in aviation um, who would be our intermediary between the expedition and various air aviation authorities. Um, and in the end, we didn't end up with the permission to fly. We ended up with a, we won't stop you as long as you text us what your plan is half an hour before you fly from a satellite phone and then allow that to basically get to our contact in Moscow who would then sort it out, communicate with air traffic um, and military and we needed to wait for a message back saying yes it's okay to fly or wait half an hour or whatever it was and um, we've since learned that part of the reason is that there's unmanned aircraft being tested up there and they can't, they couldn't guarantee separation between a group of 
it would end up being three paramotorists flying across that remote area and unmanned aircraft. They could just make sure we weren't in the air at the same yeah. at the same time. So that's what we had to do all across the north. But um, uh, I also made a point when we turned up in a town to go and speak to whoever worked in the air traffic control if there was an airport. Sometimes that was one man. Um, sometimes it was it was more than that. So how did you plan? So how did you plan where you're going to land? Do you do you, do you place turn points? Do you plan we're going to? Or do you say right, we'll go. We know we've got this much fuel. We'll head this way. It's okay. going to depend on the wind. Or so there were two. I think I would split the entire journey up into two very separate bits. So Russia was one. So I was given this three thousand pounds at the beginning um, of the trip to go to to the very start point, a place a city called Naryanmar in the north. And I had that. I had ten days and three thousand pounds to get myself there and find a way of crossing the the tundra. And so, yeah, because there's obviously, well, I'd looked at a map and I'd seen this series of towns, and I think the biggest distance between two towns was 140 kilometres, which is a bit of a stretch, depending on what the wind is and how much fuel you can take. Um, but there were these towns up there, and so I, I gathered together a few, um, a few people who knew something, a bush pilot and uh, a few others. Um, a load of blokes that came to the museum to kind of help advise and I showed them my map and what I needed to do because a lot of the swans generally follow a bit of a coastal route and I said what are this basically saying this is what I intend to do what are my chances of finding fuel and shelter and food and things at these particular towns and one of them said to me do you know what that word means in brackets after the name of the town and I was like no <laughs> that's that means abandoned and I went, okay, well, how abandoned? And he was like, well, some of them might have a few bits of wood left on the building. And, uh, <laughs> but there, if there is anyone there, there might be a hunter, but they're not going to share any of your, any of their fuel with you. So, um, yeah, I, I, uh, that could have been a, a huge blow. However, the one guy, um, got out his pencil and he started making little symbols on the top of my map, um, crosses and T's and things. And, um, and then I was like, well, what, what is he doing? And he's like, well, he was the, the bush pilot. He also had grown up on the tundra, so he's a Nanette's person, one of the reindeer breeders. And it was the, he was marking the hunting huts. They were really small, so they're not marked on, not marked on overseas maps. There's also three meteorological stations on the north um, that are also not marked on foreign maps. So he was like, he goes to them several times a year um, and was offering to leave fuel um, at some of those forests. And I was like, well, why is the fuel going to stay there? If, if people go there and visit there, why is it going to go? And he was like, well, I'm also the rescue pilot. Um, so no one's going to steal my fuel supplies. Yeah. <laughs> or um, they'd make themselves very unpopular very quickly. And uh, he also had uh, said that the, um, well, I suppose people said that you can't say where the nomads are. And he, he's chairman of the nomadic, of the reindeer breeders in that area. He actually said he can text them right before I start and get them to text back. So everyone's got one phone and they go to like the high high points um, every now and then so he's like they will be able to send back their approximate location oh, that's crazy so these nomads have a cell phone and they can one normally one phone in the in the in the group yeah. crazy like the modern world like yeah these guys oh, yeah. are living a nomadic lifestyle oh, yeah. tramping reindeer across the tundra but we, yeah we've got you've got a knock of 3310 we play snake like, it's really basic yeah they're basic mobile phones and uh yeah one of the camps we went to they had a but they've, they've all got a little generator, but they still, you know, there's a kind of a strange mix of culture, but they can pretty much fix anything with stuff like Tupperware containers. They asked for our Tupperware container. 
at one point. And I was like, why do they want Tupperware containers so much? And they can melt that and make pretty much anything. They're knife sheaths for knives. They make out of melting it into hard black plastic paragliding line. I brought that as a present because everybody said they will absolutely love that. Otherwise, you better give them some spares. Otherwise, your glider might end up missing a few <laughs> lines because that's the kind of stuff that's really valuable yeah. to them. But yeah, um, so once I had that, I was like, and uh, you know, Vlad is, uh, his name is, is Vlad. Um, I kind of had faith. Everybody was saying, yeah, he knows what he's talking about. And he's a kind of good, solid, reliable bloke. And he then took me out to one of the reindeer breeder camps to, to have a, a three-day um, survival course. Because it was like, well, people aren't going to take you seriously if they think you can't. Uh, you couldn't handle it out there on your own. So I went out, met some nomads, got training from them. And uh, they were kind of surprised when I was insisting I had to sleep outside. So I was like, you're not going to be here with your nice warm tent. I need to I'm sleep outside. And they were like, are you sure you want to do that? Yes, it's fine. So um, I slept outside, they taught me what they knew about, you know, what fish you can and can't eat, what, what you can eat raw, how easy it is to catch fish and um, how you make fire when there's the tundra has no trees anywhere, so it's low scrubby stuff uh, everywhere, but there are ways to make fire, although when I asked how do you how do you actually kind of make a fire, and they all picked up, a, took a lighter out of their pocket, <laughs> <laughs> we don't bother with anything else, if my lighter breaks, someone else's lighter will work. <laughs> So, so there's no rubbing sticks no together. No reindeer stuff going on. There. Well, their whole camp is like reindeer, so they sleep in a big sort of teepee that's covered. It's now in canvas. Um, it's covered in canvas, but it's all kind of wood that they have, long pieces of wood they carry on. So maybe half of the sleds they have with them are carrying wood because it's a really valuable commodity. Yeah. They pick up driftwood from the north coast. Um, so you lo lots of it is very well. I suppose it's kind of it's rainmares, but they've been doing it. They've been doing some things forever, but lots of things they will they will do the modern way. Yeah. So they've got a they have enough fuel and a small chainsaw, for example, where they wouldn't have had it before. But they can pretty much do anything with bloody reindeer and some rope and sticks. It's and a crazy different life. Like yeah, a crazy. Different they can life. all retire at forty five. Their life is so hard. They they can retire at forty five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And what do they do they, for retirement? Well, then? There are there are villages where the women, so the women and the children don't aren't nomadic all the year round. They are for half the year the warmer part of the year. The other half, the women and the children go into uh, into towns and the kids get schooled. And so when they retire, they tend to go into the into move into a town. And then, and what's like the uh, the life expectancy? Not of one of those very guys? long. I can't remember. They did tell me the f on my first recce trip. They did tell me, um, but they uh, they they loved. They loved that I uh, I was was turning up. They tried to give me kind of some local clothing to fly with, and it was so heavy, really warm, but ridiculously heavy. And um, it took a while for them to actually open up and speak. But the first few questions they wanted to ask about Britain were things like, "Are all British men gay?" Because that's what the Russian media. Oh, do they? <laughs> yeah. That's what Putin tells people. <laughs> 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 impression up here because they they listen to radio every now and then and um and they'll pick up newspapers obviously they don't get tons of newspapers but when someone is um near a town they get newspapers but yeah that's the kind of uh stuff um they wanted they knew about they asked about royal family just because obviously that's a thing that the britain is famous for yeah. uh yeah and about elton john i think it was it was at the time that there'd been the elton john putin prank phone call yeah thing that had gone on so we're known in Russia, we're known for being gay, all <laughs> listening to Art and John, and worshiping the royal family. It's good to know. Yeah. I've, I've been offered uh, been offered fights in Russia before, and uh, 
I've never fought in Russia. I, I, we were negotiating one fight, and um, the promoter would stuff would change all the time, and then you have to. I mean, you're always going to be going to for a loss if you go and fight somewhere like like Russia. You've lost the fight when you go. You have to you have to win. You have to knock the guy out or submit him because you're never winning a decision. You know, uh, an English guy going to Russia, you're going to lose a decision. And right. who do you complain yes. to? Do you yeah. complain to a Russian board? And you're an English. So yeah, negotiations were going on. In the end, we walked away from the fight. We were like, no, fuck. Like the money's not enough to come over and fight. And then we got hope that we're going to get paid. And, you know, I'm sure there's some great Russian federation are brilliant over there but it's a yeah it's a lot of work to go over there so uh yeah and, but and lots of things work work quite differently so that you know that was quite a, a long process or for me at the beginning and then I got to a point where I realized you just have to have Russian partners who really know how to deal with things because yeah there's there's too many yeah. Too many cultural language and cultural barriers. And um, I mean, you're d- you're deep in Russia as well. You're not like Moscow where people are no. kind of learning. <laughs> you're deep into Russia now. You're yeah, reindeer nomads. So yeah. Yeah. The, the, the nice thing is they have the one thing that underlies their culture is you know if someone is in the shit you help them out. Yeah. There was no was problem because you were a woman doing this. They didn't. Did, did they find that strange or? Uh, well, they def- I found the whole concept of it a bit strange to begin with. I mean, it was it was a few hours before anybody would really would really talk to me on my on my first trip up there. But by the time I left, I was you know given a baby reindeer skin, and um, you know it was we were talking on a whole different level. Once they'd realised that I was actually I was for real, I had the balls to go and sleep on my own outside. Um, and uh, you know I was rubbish at it, but I listed try and the women normally ride the ride the reindeer if they're there, and it's really really hard. You've got like a huge long stick, like a massive boat hook, which you have to handle with one hand to try and poke the one lead reindeer and the bum in the right way, whilst you've got the the reins and you're holding on to the to the sled at the same time. And there's about eight reindeer pulling you at speed. It's really really hard, really hard, like kind of a kind of jousting, but. Um, you do it for big distances. They they'd they'd seen me get on, have a try, and not be scared to kind of fail and things. So they um I think at the end they had a quite a huge amount of uh, of respect, uh, and certainly were willing to. Oh, and I'd eaten the really, they I think they'd potentially given me the stuff they thought I really wouldn't eat. One of which was um, a milk urn turned up and was put on the table, and they lifted the took the lid off it, and the smell that came out of it was like. Well, it was it was a bucket of rotten fish, but it was so rotten it had gone slimy, like properly brown and slimy. And they pulled a piece out and chopped it up and gave me a piece, and it's been in there two two months. And this is actually a food that they eat once. It's a this type of fish. You can be really rotten, and you will. It's still okay for human consumption, but they have no way of refrigerating stuff in that at that time of year. So if you're going to keep it, it has to be rotten. Anyway, they gave it to me. I think all all watching me, so I knew that I knew that their the expectation was that I would spit it out. Anyway, I kind of realised it's also the fish also kind of goes a bit soft once it's in that state. So I got a piece of bread, or it was kind of bread anyway, and um, smeared this fish on the bread and kind of thought blue cheese and bit into it and to be honest it wasn't any worse than blue cheese um just the smell you just have to really like try and not blue breathe cheese in is awesome yeah blue cheese tasted awesome the yeah. only thing is when you if you're eating blue cheese it's the smell of rotten fish that was like it's completely filled yeah. the entire tent um but yeah rotten rotten fish so they they'd certainly tested me a little bit you won them over um and and i think they could see that the the swans were a real kind of passion and it was a it was a genuine trip we really needed to know what was going wrong for them 
and um, yeah, they asked they asked a lot of questions on that as well. They weren't going to be accepting the kind of you know, we love the swans and um, you know, don't shoot them. For them, hunting is the only way that they eat, so they can't grow anything up. They're the only thing stuff that grows on permafrost is berries and mushrooms, really. Yeah. So they eat berries, mushrooms, reindeer that they kill, birds and fish, yeah. and so telling them they can't eat a certain food source is a is a big thing. So. Um, uh, they asked me really tough questions like how do you know they're declining like it would be for them if you realize the landscape they live in it would be impossible to count swans yeah, up yeah. there um, so they asked me tough questions about that how do you, how do you really know they're declining and um, how do you know the difference between the different type of swans um, some of them said that you know they, they knew swans were protected but they um, assumed that was just because they're in fairy stories not because the numbers are really declining but um, they were really practical people and in the end they kind of said as soon as we realized that wolves were declining, we stopped making hunting a wolf a part of a... For boys, they used to have to yeah, kill, kill a wolf, wolf before they can have reindeer, and they can't have a woman before they have reindeer. So basically, you, you're not a man until you've killed a, killed a wolf. So that was part of their culture until... I'm not sure how long ago when they just realized it was too easy now with guns and there's not enough of them left. And the same with walrus. They don't hunt walrus anymore because the numbers are so low. So they said you can convince us that the numbers are declining then there are other birds coming through we can stop but we need a way of communicating so it, it was it was I think great and really positive yeah. and a good sign that the, the the project when it happened the following year was going to work yeah so from Russia the next yeah. step there is okay so so and you asked how we did the so the first bit of Russia we had myself flying Alexander Bogdanov flying his paramotor and um, Dan Burton as the camera person uh, for that and so for the first it turned out to be about 700 kilometers uh, there was no ground crew we had Vlad came and visited us um, in a helicopter in a plane a couple of times because he was bought into the whole project and filming it from the from the aircraft as well uh, it was a lot it was a, a lot of fun but the most beautiful place I've ever been in my whole life um, after that first stretch we had a ground crew with us and the ground crew by that time was massive because we had to film the thing with 5k so we had five camera people we had a medic a mechanic it was a very different kettle of fish but we had to cross um the, so i put most of my time peggy's about to come in okay we should be good and we are recording, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I put a, a lot of thought into trying to cross the, the tundra in particular because there was no roads there and that was logistically really difficult and high um, high in risk because of the amount of water there and the chances of water landings, even unexpected water landings, were really high. Um, but after I met the ground crew, we were at the very beginning of the taiga, the, that's T-A-I-G-A, -A, the big kind of uh, wet forests of northern Russia. And because there's roads, or there's at least one road through that region, we kind of had assumed we'd always have the road as a backup for landings. And, um, you know, it's a massive area of forest, so there's always going to be some forestry going on. So there'll be patches of clearings in different places. As long as you can fly at a decent altitude, I kind of figured we'd, we'd find a way through any of that. And sometimes, um, uh, yeah, so basically, after the first couple of days, going up to altitude I never imagined a place where you could go be at you know 3,000 feet and you can see no sign apart from maybe one really thin little road there's no sign of any kind of logging 
any human ever touching the landscape so it's thick forest and where it's not thick forest it's bog so obviously at those points like that landing options are really bloody limited yeah. and um it was kind of daunting but i thought as long as you can go really high that's fine but we had the added co- complication of russian air traffic telling us again we we're obviously in an area where they were unmanned aircraft because for a big chunk of it they then it was maybe 400 kilometers they basically said you, you can fly just can't fly above 200 feet and that's <laughs> above thick forest <laughs> that's really low yeah um so yeah we weren't we weren't that, that was it so it was like right so either we get in the car and drive or we fly at 200 feet and hope that if there's any motor failure you're basically landing in trees i mean lots of paragliders have landed in trees so we just had to kind of accept that that was going to be an option there might be the road there but um there's a reasonably good chance you'd end up being in the trees and we had to accept that that was kind of going to be a part of it so for those stretches um i spent all the time thinking right which are the softest looking trees if i'm going to hit the trees am i going to pull out my reserve and throw it so i've got so i'm definitely going to get caught up is that a kind of and at what height would i do that do i do that right as you're hitting the trees do you do you throw that out beforehand and um and yeah 200 feet you haven't got much time to think if your motor yeah. mot- yeah. fails um so i had that as an issue also the weather was you know it's it's autumn and coming into winter and so there was kind of sometimes a fog you'd be flying kind of through bits of bits of light cloud which would then become fog and then before you know it you're kind of being enclosed so on a few occasions found uh, myself having to make a decision of do i land here where there's not really decent landing or go up through the cloud and i know you'd never do that here it's just a you know yeah. a thing you don't do you don't fly in zero visibility yeah. but we're in really remote areas um if it was at the beginning of flight and then you had had a ton of fuel um we basically just had to keep on making that judgment call again and again and again the other thing if you land in a you know, even if, you, if you land in the trees even if you find a little clearing and you end up down in that the satellite phone doesn't work so trying to send your position because the satellites are all really low on the horizon so if you're in a thick forest you can't get the satellite down low yeah. enough to get a signal so all of your um all of your decisions change they have very different boundaries up there and there was one stretch where we intended to follow the road i was at a place called pinega and um it was through really kind of much more it was through kind of cast countryside so the road would go down into valleys and we could just look at it and realize that there was no landing on roads like that were almost impossible also the air had got ridiculously turbulent i'm not really sure why and we're having to fly low and i added all those up and there was another pilot there was just one other pilot flying with me at the time and i just thought the chances of, of surviving this are so are so slim um or too slim if, if anything went wrong and i turned around at one point and said look we're going back we're going back to the the, the last clearing i need to rethink this completely and so went back to the last clearing which was um, a really small village had a few people land by that time authorities of all kinds were watching our trail obviously because we'd land and someone would turn up with a bag of slides the local dignitaries would turn up and want to shake our hands and things anyway I happened to land right next to a bloke who was doing a bit of work on a building and he um, mentioned to him through a translator the the problem we had was just that we basically couldn't do the route we wanted to do it was it was too risky there was not even any road to land on and but the river looked really good just the river was going to take us a long way away from the ground crew and um there were the river changed levels quite a lot so that was a a risk um and there were often 
willows so there'd be a, a big sand island in the middle of a really wide river often covered in low willows but definitely survivable like you know yeah. you might it'd be uncomfortable if you had to land into a load of that um seemed like the best option by a long way but we would have we would struggle to get to tell anybody where we were if we were in high countryside would the satellite phone work um but we basically um this guy kind of as random strangers did everywhere in russia he said i've got a speedboat they're all obviously hunters i've got a speedboat and and a satellite phone and if you can go the route if you do come and uh, land in a river I'll make it my priority to go out in a boat and pick you up from whatever sand island you land on I was like that's awesome you just like uh, these are people with very little you know they've got they might have a boat but that's what they use to kind of feed themselves people with very little just kept on offering us everything so um, that was lovely it meant I kind of had the freedom to to take the route the satellite phone might not have worked but at least if we're in the river then we had a better chance in the river of it working than in the thick forest yeah sure um so yeah, the tiger proved had you know lots of lots of challenges. I ended up in up in zero visibility in a few occasions, but it was still um, it was still still um, amazing. And then yeah, later on, obviously we're crossing tons of countryside, which was like weeks of my life. But from once we got over the border into Estonia, um, that got really ridiculously cold then. So that became really tough, and I was on my own then. How flying. long into the journey are you now? You've, you've crossed like five weeks, Russia. I think. Five weeks in at this point. Yeah, just, just yeah. So I sorry, just, I just crossing I dis- Russia. Just crossing Russia, but I dislocated my knee in the middle of that as well. So oh, I also okay. had to learn to fly a trike because my knee was just in a complete mess. So uh, five weeks just crossing <laughs> Russia. Yeah, it is. It is huge. It is. Yeah. Uh, it is a, a big chunk of the whole trip. So yeah, five weeks crossing Russia, and um, and then yeah, once we we're in Estonia, then it felt much more like we were crossing Europe and so landing options were then everywhere there was you know there's fields and agriculture all over the place quite often lumpy um, but in Russia even fields that had been um, were being cultivated with um, rougher is that that a a word a kind of rougher kit were all much more corrugated underneath hence why I've dislocated my knee because ground underneath what looked like a reasonably soft kind of grass paddock was really um, was really lumpy underneath so yeah from Europe onwards from sorry Estonia onwards we still had 10 countries to cross then Um, but and the risk of things like power lines uh, went through the roof the weather got you know absolutely freezing cold much more uh, much more variable as well um, a lot more airspace to kind of work around so logistical issues on those fronts um, and we were seeing swans more uh, more often because there were it was further into the migration season by that time um, but yeah a lot the logistics changed completely did you find that once you got into European countries the assistance became less helpful from people or did you feel that, that car- like the Russians were obviously great by the sounds of it, they were great. They all helped you out, and you landed. But finding <coughs> that once you got into like first world civilization, do you think that that went down? Or and it wasn't. So it was it, the in remote areas we were so unusual. So that's I suppose why we just got so much attention. Uh, I would, you know, you could come into a small be a, kind of flying above a small village and see people running from as far like if there was anybody you know out out picking berries over yonder they'd be running to kind of see what on earth was happening one of the ground crew vehicles was trying to find us once and so they didn't even need to know, look up to where we were because they could follow the children they were just running from all over the place to the spot the word got around instantly that i'd just landed 
Um, in one place, I had there was no areas to land apart from a street in the middle of the town, which was, you know, again, you'd never do that in other circumstances, yeah. but there just was no clearing anywhere. And these um, people have never seen a power motor or a power. Never seen a power motor, and you know, that that was great. So in the in those remote areas, the thing I had to do was make you had to speak to people to find to get information, and you to leave a, a legacy of a legend. And I'm 100 percent sure that people are going to be talking about this mad English woman that turned up chasing the swans and hopefully why uh, why she was doing it as well so there we had to create you know word of mouth stories and and meet with lots of people and give them a personal experience you know that um and they were really novel so even at the end of russia when we were over in over big cities um so we did kind of fly around st petersburg and things there as soon as you're in a big city you are less novel yeah um people are less likely to go wow i'm waiting at you um you know kids still come and flock around but they're um they're yeah kids kids still come and flock around um but you're just you're you're less of a a novelty um what we still got then was media so there was more media and in russia we'd never got a swan research swan research i think had ever touched any russian media and we had 84 pieces of coverage i think by the time we left um but that was a bigger thing once i hit estonia my first landing i was completely and utterly frozen when i landed on a old military airfield and there was cameras and things all laid out everywhere it was you just felt you're in this is a different this yeah. is a different part of the world um but yeah from uh, from estonia onwards it was a it was a different thing um how so how often were you flying you were flying every single day from there or once you hit into europe were you just picking weather days and i had to fly every single bit of flyable day so the um a part of the expedition and a reason that so it, it changed a lot from my initial concept once we'd said to partners along the flyway um you know that we're coming through the, the what we're doing is kind of creating a story we'll create um a lot of uh what interest and a bit of a spectacle um the partners were then kind of they had the opportunity to make whatever media they they could of it so to look at for example in estonia what are the big issues in estonia for swans I'll make sure that anytime I'm talking to the media, that's my message. But you tell me kind of where to go. And if I need to meet the mayor to try and get this bit of wetland saved, then I'll go and meet the mayor. Um, And they kind of went far further than I had hoped they would go because we ended up with a schedule. And I was kind of, I had to kind of start saying, this is really not possible. So it's already, it is a ridiculous thing to expect to be able to paramotor this whole distance. It's, It's longer than anyone else I've known doing a trip. Um, you're kind of trying to follow a swan's sort of schedule and you cannot know what the weather's going to be like and this is the worst time of year probably to do a trip like this so it might be possible to do it but it certainly won't be possible to come to do it on a schedule yeah pick the days yes you have to fly we have to fly fly. so um i we had had this big battle at the beginning and then people going oh no but you can't now we've got kind of you know there's 20 schools now that all want you to go and visit and i personally was saying we can't do this but the researchers in our department were kind of saying well can we start weighing up which is which is which is the most important if we get tons of engagement with people or you can do the flight and i know from having worked in the world of adventure before if you want to if you claim to do something and don't do it uh then you then put the whole expedition at risk in terms of people's perception um and it's now a whole ngo behind it so you know i'd said i'll fly the whole route so i had to go away and think about this because i was it was a really big issue for me um, 
and I realised this was maybe six months, seven months before the trip started, I my best option was to learn to fly a microlight. So I wanted to fly the whole way and I wanted to be exposed. But with a microlight, I could fly in a broader range of conditions. And so I started, started to learn a microlight just in case I, I needed to because the schedules were getting ridiculous. Um, ground crew manager on the trip had said, if we end up with a ridiculous schedule, he would be prepared to drive me 500 miles to an event if it was important and drive me back. Some of the events were like scientific conferences, four of them developed after we said the trip was going to happen. So four groups of scientists kind of decided, right, we need to talk about, you know, power lines or wind farms and we'll have an event on that. So we couldn't really not. Not attend it them, was yeah, It was course. definitely worth doing. You were like the catalyst that calls the event. So it was, yes. should really be there, yeah. And we, so I organised for us to have um, the capability of live broadcasting from wherever we were into that event, but but which was fine at first. But once the trip was getting so much coverage, I had become a bit of a celebrity. And so it was kind of like the celebrity not turning up to their event. So as, as we were, the more successful we were, the more they badly wanted me in person mm-hmm. to turn up at a place. And I was still just kind of me trying desperately to fly across this whole journey. And it felt, felt really ridiculous and intangible um, at times. But then I'd turn up at a place where a school where the kids had been learning about swans for the last six months and following the whole trip. And there was like, screaming and kind of waving as I arrived and and uh, pe- kids wanting autographs and selfies and um, you kind of could see the impact of it but from an expedition point of view it was complicated yeah. um, and so in that yes in that kind of the months preceding the expedition I'd learned to fly the microlight and my instructor had said can I volunteer to come on the trip so that you can have the microlight there all the time in case you need to fly it? I was like, really? Would you redo that? So volunteer your time, your three months of your time and your microlight. And it was a super nice, modern, fast uh, microlight, uh, flex wing. So he offered to come. And that also meant we had a platform to put VIPs in if we needed to show them that a wetland needed saving. We'd yeah. stick somebody in the microlight, take them up in the air. It's much harder to do in a paramotor. Not many dignitaries in a suit are going to want to run along in front of you. So, um, yeah, we ended up with the microlight with us as well. Um, I forgot why I'm telling you. Why I'm telling you that that the oh, so from then on, it basically became a logistical nightmare. In Russia, we hadn't had this schedule of stuff yeah. to do, um, but from Estonia onwards, we had a we had a schedule. So. Um, Arrived in Estonia, freezing cold. The way the wind then just picked up. So I was landing. I was only just making forward progress as I came into to land. And then over the next few days, in fact, it might have been a week. Then we couldn't. I couldn't fly at all. So we drove to the main wetland sites. Yeah. But the one thing I always said was, I will fly the entire route. I don't care by what means. Or it has to be in an exposed aircraft, so paramotor or in microlight. But I will not drive any of the roads. So I've said, fly the whole journey. Um, so yeah, that's what we that's what we did. But the weather got really bad in Estonia, um, which meant I got to spend a lot of time looking for swans. Where one of our swans actually died, one of the radio collared swans died uh, in Estonia, which is a shame. We're still not sure why. We tried to go back and find her body and her and her collar, but we couldn't. Um, she certainly got stuck in a blizzard. Might just have not had enough energy um, yeah. to fly further. And um, hopefully we'll we'll get more information later. Um, but yeah, it was. So now you're in. So now you're in Europe, in the thick yeah. of Europe now, and you've uh, now you're just on the homeward leg. But obviously, it's increased because you have all these extra things to go now and visit. So you have to. Yeah. Did it change the direction of your course? Did you have to go off sidetracked off to here, or you still got to fly the route that you'd planned? No. Or the route, route, route the, now the route's become ad hoc, and you're just. 
Uh, it didn't fly exactly the route I'd planned. So, for example, we got to I got to Tartu, the capital uh, in Estonia, and um, the wetland I intended to go to was sort of to the north um, east. There was two to the northwest. Sorry, there's two really important wetlands for swans. In the end, we drove out there um, and then had events we had to go to. In fact, I think I ended up we went out there, spent some time with the swans there, did loads of media interviews there. Um, there's also a big wetland site there that used to be the home of swan hunting so it was really interesting to, to see that um, but I had to respond to events so there was an event in the south of Estonia so we had to drive there because it was just completely unflyable conditions and then there was an event in Latvia so we actually had to drive all the way into Latvia um, and we separated out our whole ground crew so that some people were off filming swans and I was having to drive around to events and I was like one of them was an art competition in Latvia and I went, really, do I have to go to an art competition in Latvia? Because I'm definitely coming back into Estonia to be able to do the next flight. And um, we went into Latvia, did breakfast television there. No one really cared whether I'd flown in or driven in or, or what. Um, they were still really excited. And um, the art competition, I tried to get out of it to be able to go back. And, um, and they were like, oh, well, okay. Uh, and then be, can you at least sign can you at least sign all the certificates and I was like all the certificates how big an art competition are we talking and considering Latvia is a really tiny country there were a short list of 200 pieces of art that were all based on the Buick Swan and their, their stipulations for the competition had been there had to be a piece of art but with a story along with it as well that was relevant to that piece of art and there were 200 amazing pieces of artwork like someone had knitted a pair of gloves which had the entire all the seasons the swans go through and a Buick swan on each on each hand um, others had made full kind of scenery sculptures out of um, out of plastic and glass and someone else out of lace so they were really detailed things and I looked at it all and went god people have put in so much effort um, I know I said kind of just an art competition but it's a it's that's so much bigger than I yeah. thought we were getting. And this is off the back of you doing this, or the art competition was. No, this is all on the back of this. So people had just wow. the story had just kind of the the fact that somebody was prepared to do it was a lot of it was the fact that somebody's prepared to do something like that for species. It was people who wouldn't normally have paid much attention, I suppose, cared because another human being really cared. Yeah. And so then they bothered to go and, and research about the swans. But it was amazing, like from five year old kids to forty five year olds, there were people who had put in a huge amount of effort so I went along to it and um, I'm so glad I did because there was like people cried <laughs> it was like I was thinking God, here I'm worried about the, you know the, the authenticity of the expedition and flying from A to B people are kind of crying about you know having been involved and being a part of it and it got more media coverage again and suddenly the kind of it was then associated with the big wetland there that needs more protection so it just was kind of working but I did still manage to drive then yeah. drove no I didn't I got in a, in Latvia I got in the microlight flew back to Tartu <laughs> had to turn around there is a tiny gap there because we were flying I was basically flying in worse and worse conditions going towards Tartu so four kilometers out before the the airport that I landed in or the airstrip I'd landed that the condition just got too bad I mean I was already pushing it in terms of you know bad bad weather um, four kilometers out and I was like right that's gonna that's gonna have to do um, so we had to turn around and then fly fly uh, pretty much back again to the next event I can't remember where that next was but um, until yeah I could get the get the parameter again it was <laughs> it was it became a very different kettle of fish if you can see it was kind of the power we had was through media um, and through you know lots of that kind of event schools yeah. who'd really run with it and I was then, you know, fulfilling a role. 
and yeah, I so have to say that the flying became much more of a chore and getting from A to B and yeah, the weather the weather was bad um, yeah. yeah did you do you feel that uh, you do you feel that you started to care more and more as it went on obviously you cared enough to want to do this trip in the initially but then as you go on and you see the amount of people that you're reaching do you feel that you suddenly thought man this is really this is really doing something and do you think you cared more it's, I don't know if you could have cared more I don't know you know you were whether at first it was just initially they brought you in and you're like well we could do this and you just find a solution to a problem but now you're starting to really care about it and take it on board as your baby you know um, I so it was no, it was kind of my it was definitely my baby all the time but it became more the I was I had always said I kind of said that this kind of thing would would work this is how it would work um, that people would start to run with it but you know it was all kind of promises and fingers crossing like I'm pretty sure this will work but obviously I was talking about it with confidence but it definitely became more of a um, it was very logical at the beginning and I was you know the flying was really challenging and it was really really interesting I then I cared did I care more I certainly became a much softer person through this trip so I'm famous at work for not being a hugger yeah and I got to a point where like so many kids and all kinds of people just wanted to hug me and I realized like this really meant a lot to them people some one woman drove from Germany to the Netherlands just to say thank you so much for changing the way I look at conservation and gave me hugs and I was like you know you actually care I don't like hugs hugs from good friends great but anyone who's not my one of my five best friends like stay away yeah. now it was random people but they've been moved so much and so it definitely became no longer it was less my project and more a project that was working so I think I became less important I became I was more distant from it a little bit I was a, a, a figurehead for it that people were associating with a movement that was that was happening and was joining yeah. people together um, and uh, it gave me a lot more faith that you can really can you can change the world with a good idea really uh, yeah. w when you get that many people prepared to do something small um, you can have a huge amount of power and so when yeah you when you believe in it and you you are passionate about it it spreads right it's contagious then and, and people see that it just keeps yeah keeps growing if, yeah. but I had to keep letting people I had to keep letting go so kind of agreeing so I was always I wanted to stay in the paramotor all the time but when it was a decision of paramotor and not do these 10 events or you know fly the micro light go to these events and then have to kind of backtrack yeah, yeah. or do weird routes or whatever uh, in the end it became a really obvious decision like the end it's my it's my it's my ego it's the yeah, end yeah, goal exactly. and uh and yeah it was it was moving people we were starting this mexican way that we said we start from the beginning yeah. so how many countries did you f did you uh, like attend in, on the journey 11 11 what 11. countries were they uh russia estonia latvia lithuania poland germany denmark back into germany that doesn't count twice uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Britain. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> do you find? Uh, how do you find the reception or media response in the UK compared to other places? Do you think we've been as receptive, or do you think it's not really picked up? I, I think maybe, obviously, being involved in, uh, like, I'm a hunter. I fly birds of prey. I do. Mm -hmm. I do falconry. But I consider myself a conservationist before I consider myself a hunter. People, mm -hmm. people can't seem to understand that because I hunt with a bird of prey, they can't seem to understand that I love nature and wildlife and I don't like killing things. They think that those two things can't be synonymous. But uh, mm. So I find that... That's quite a common 
kind of perception. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. But I find that people here are because maybe we're so first world and they they're very detached from from, from things like this. And yeah, from, yeah, and even from from your point of view of what you're doing, the purpose of why you're doing it, they'll read about it. And they'll tell a friend about it, and they think they've done enough. They think that's enough contribution. They read your story and they told somebody, so that's enough of a contribution. Um, as where it seems like other places really got on board and really embraced what you were doing and took it on. Do you think there was that much awareness in the UK as well as other places? Or so it, I suppose it's a bit. It's a bit different. So in some countries, conservation is really, really low down the agenda. So we made a massive difference. So in Poland at the moment, the national the Minister for the Environment are telling telling farmers take away the bits of wetland if you want them. Um, the it's a very very different kettle of fish. So the conservation has been shoved right down through ignorance or through political leaning. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's become so. So in countries like that, we were making a, a huge difference. Suddenly, conservation was getting on television. You know, we were, they were talking about. They asked me, you, "You can't basically do a trip like this without sa- saying to me, why have you done it?'" And then I would talk about the the issues, and it, it it caused a really huge stir. Whereas here, we talk about conservation quite often. People are kind of aware of swans. There was certainly a huge amount of coverage here. So I think BBC Breakfast made seven or eight different pieces at different points, starting from six months before the trip like all the preparation the kind of the ditching in water practice the medical training they did um they did a huge amount i think we had i can't remember now but hundreds of pieces of television coverage um so the media response was was good um i wasn't focused on the flying kind of media because that was the flying just for me just had to work um but the reaction from people um, I think that's probably down to us to need to do more. So before I went, uh, we raised £60,000 in donations from individuals. So people did something at the very beginning. Um, but the main issue in the UK is the loss of wetlands, and that's a slightly more complicated thing for people to do anything about, and they kind of need guidance for us. So I have a part two expedition, <laughs> which uh, hopefully people will back here, which will try and make that more relevant to people's individual sites. So if you look at it, the situation in the UK, this is so off flying at the moment, but in the UK, it is really artificial. So we at WWT, we've got now 10 sites around the country. Buick Swans are using primarily two of them, one in Norfolk and one here in Slimbridge. Um, they use Martin Muir a little bit. They used to go up to Scotland, but they don't anymore. They used to go to, there's a few that go to Ireland still, but hardly any. Um, it's a really artificial situation that birds are using these reserves and they're not um, spread out all over the country. And that's because we've got so little wetlands left. In the UK, we've lost 90% in the last 400 years. Wow. So that's just because wet boggy areas or kind of big lakes are an easy thing to fill in so that constant loss of wetlands over time has made a massive impact on lots of different birds so it's great that people will pay to come into Slimbridge to see the to see the swans but that's that's not a healthy situation for conservation in the long run so I think that's our role as a conservation charity now is to make that really relevant to people and I consider myself a conservation, but I would have never really considered that point until you just said, um, it, uh, from what it sounds like, wetlands are becoming more like a zoo now than they are just a part of the, the yeah. country, you well, know, and like you can pay to come and see Slimbridge, but yeah, that's great, but that that's what a zoo is, that's not, that's not what we're trying to do, we're, we need these wetlands everywhere, it needs to become a part of 
of England yeah. in our countryside that it, you don't have to pay to come to Slimbridge because they're here, they're everywhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've never really considered it like that before. And yeah, and it's a, you know once you once you start saying well this is a nature reserve, people can go oh well that's where nature lives. It doesn't. I mean, if you look at the strategy of other charities at the moment as well, a lot of it is about kind of saying, you know, we need to make homes for nature all over the place. And the loss of wetlands, I think it's really easy. It was kind of gradual and over time. And yeah, we need to start turning that around again. But um, you have to make it relevant to people. It's amazing. Every single town around the UK that's got a name like that starts with Tran or Cran is named after cranes so there used to be huge populations of cranes around wetlands around the country a lot of those towns don't have any wetland at all anymore it's only when you look at a map of all of those and you can see where how how big this kind of loss has been so yeah that's our next big um planet WWT. it's great to do the kind of big expedition but in this country yeah we need to start making people love living near water again yeah so what about for you personally you um it you have a lust for adventure, or was it just because the the uh, the conservation side of things sparked it for you? Oh, you? Well, my lust for adventure goes back really a long way. I grew up um, partly on the northern beaches of Sydney, where I had all the freedom to go and snorkel and or dive and spearfish and all sorts. Um, but a lot of it in the Australian outback, and so I had to entertain myself. Um, so I'm completely comfortable outside, and before. Before um, flying, I was, as I said before, free diving and cave diving and things. Uh, but I'm really driven by using those skills to do something. So I kind of I got bored after two years of competing at free diving. I was like, like I don't care about the points. Um, what I care about is using it to do something interesting. So I started up a dive group in Australia where I was, you know, checking shark nets all the time. And there's an amazing story there. So I love using adventure to go places and tell interesting interesting stories and i think yeah cons- there's so much adventure to be had in conservation but i'm more interested where at the core of what you're doing is for conservation and the adventurous tools happen to be part of it i'm not really interested in an adventure where you kind of you just stick on a, i'm raising awareness for blah because there's not enough there's not enough to the story i think and there's plenty of adventure to be had in other things and just with Flight of the Swans, I think we did something so different, so amazing. And there are eight major flyways. So that's eight, one of the major flyways of the world. Lots of different birds use that flyway, not just the swans. So anything we do to help the swans, recreating wetlands will help all the other birds. Um, and there's one other flyway in the world, which is under serious threat at the moment. And I've started working as soon as, well, a couple of months ago, I started working on it in earnest. If we can make that work, um, if we can do another flight down that flyway, engage all the people along that particular region, um, yeah, that's. So, what's the main threat there? The same, just the, exactly the same situation. Mm, no, um, can I tell you what it is? I think I can. <laughs> don't leave, don't let it. anything out of bag. Don't want anything. Um, so it again covers multiple countries. It's a lot. It's a longer flyway, so I might have to mix um, mix the paramotoring with um, the flexing microlight again. Yeah. Uh, but there's a particular site, so it's it's wetland loss. It's really really rapid development, yeah. and we're at a but we're at a point where politically it might be 
a good point to shine a lot of international support yeah, on that yeah. kind of on that issue so a big pat on the back a big positive pat on the back to make it happen before we lose too many birds there's quite a few species that are all on the brink of extinction and so conservation charities are running around desperately trying to like keep populations in safe havens we've got one at Slimbridge and it's a huge amount of work a huge amount of expense whereas what we really need to do is stop them all dying they're basically a huge stretch where there's hardly any places they can stop and feed and they're mostly small birds that need to stop regularly so um yeah more of that I think the model really works so yeah I mean it seemed to work there and how much did the trip cost funding wise how much did you have to did you have to raise that money or did you get funded or so yeah originally planned I thought for 75k I could do it uh, well but as it grew and we needed to then make a like a, a full film shot in 6k their cost spiraled and um, we had a good corporate sponsorship so uh, not in terms of cash we had no corporate cash really um, but vehicles from Mitsubishi and satellite technology and things like that we had um, but overall I think it probably ended up costing about 200 grand wow yeah yeah big investment but then 200 grand to to maybe have preserved the life of this species of swan in the it's it's cheap in the grand scheme of things if you think about what it would cost if we were starting to try and keep you know populations of some of these birds once you try and keep art populations and doing kind of small bits of work um it gave a yeah it gave a lot of power to some of the things that the different countries are doing um, on their own as well. It suddenly made it much more high profile and a desirable thing to be backing. So, um, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, 200 grand uh, is really good value, but it's still a lot of money to raise for the next yeah, one. But hopefully, so the last one, we didn't raise any corporate funding despite we had a few people interested, but I think any paramotorist they spoke to said, no, nah, there's no way she'll do it. Yeah. I think one of our paramotoring sponsors even told people, there's no way she'll do it. She's going to die. Someone will probably shoot her. Um, so that wouldn't have helped. And also anyone looking up paramotoring on YouTube always goes to, you see a couple of videos, and then you get paramotor crashes. Yeah, yeah. So it looks extreme. So there was a Russian Dang bank. YouTube rabbit hole. Yeah. Of, yeah. Yes, it's awful. <laughs> so um, most people thought I had no chance. And it's quite, I mean, it's quite, it's quite funny to look back at that now. So hopefully for the next one, there'll be a bit more um, support. Uh, and a bit more faith that you know this kind of thing is possible because it's not if you look at it country by country it's not impossible um, if you break any big adventure down into small pieces then it's possible you have a, need to have a huge amount of optimism but yeah. I've got that in spades well surely <laughs> surely Russia's like the worst of the worst it doesn't get any well, I mean that's got to be the, the hardest climate to be negotiating in something like this it's got to be climate Russia, and politics uh, yeah climate and politics yeah well, yeah, or you can try China and Burma. Yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> North Korea, maybe. <laughs> Which is the next one. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe Asia's quite hard as well then. But, uh, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you've, you've certainly... Done, and the amount of uh, conservation is going to come off the back of it for other species as well is just really exciting. So when will you start... Have you started to see um, any of the benefits the benefits come back yet or is it too early you have to wait see another migration period and see if you've got to see you know if if the if more swans make it back the percentage starts to rise or we won't know for another few years really whether it's uh, made a difference there's still more research going on so in august i'm going back up with a team of researchers from wwt we're going to tag some more swans um to answer a few more questions but also look at climate change so that's 
that was an area amongst all the scientists along the flyway that was a, a heated area of debate. Our data overall says it doesn't seem to be something wrong in the breeding ground. So up in the Arctic on the tundra, it seems that survival rate of the young there is quite okay. Other research had said that there is a problem there. So we're going up to test, for example, um, take core samples from all the lakes up there. Then you can look back over the last hundred years and see how has the landscape changed, what different flora and fauna uh, are up here. So we'll be able to have a really good measure of that. So there's more more data. If, if it's climate change, if that becomes a really important factor, then we're going to really struggle. Yeah. But we have, for example, um, some major wins already so on the trip um, we looked at power line collisions um, in a couple of places and in uh, in Denmark people are, the government have now um, promised to bury all their power lines so they lose about 5,000 swans a year in Denmark alone Wow! it does cause them some um, economic issues because it cuts out the power supply when they when big ones do the same in, in Lithuania, where it's through um, a city called Kaunas, there's an area where the swans were even, basically any disturbance on the on the river was sending birds up into the power lines. So when I was there, we just I just went to interview a lady who was feeding a Buick swan that couldn't migrate anymore, it hit power lines, had a broken wing that had rotten and fallen off. She'd been feeding it for a few years. And so we used kind of her as an example and got tons of coverage in there at region. Um, after we left, a member of the public noticed multiple swans hitting power lines and then coming down and thought to go out there and film it and because there had been so much coverage managed to get the conservationists that got the kind of various government officials together and have managed to come up with a plan now for stopping that so first of all all the disturbance unfortunately it was kayakers that she was filming every time a group of like kayakers would go up and down they'd kill four or five swans at a time and it's just because the power lines are badly badly sighted they didn't have big enough obvious enough balls um but you could bury them or reroute them somewhere else so they've taken that seriously now obviously denmark is a is a hugely positive win um in terms of the illegal hunting the F european federation for um hunting has invited uh, me and one of the researchers to go to brussels next week mm -hmm. to present to them um, I'm fairly certain small swans are being shot in Russia but some of that is subsistence and we've kind of dealt with some of those issues in Germany somebody shot a Buick swan as we were flying through there he said it was accidental um, but then if, you're, if it's in low light like, don't shoot and, yeah we uh, get the same with birds of prey with falconry we get the same thing and it's what people accidentally like, killing well they're saying that they uh, lots of birds of prey are shot wild birds of prey are shot each year and um, it gets claim it's accident you know accidental which comes down to if you're shooting don't shoot what you can't identify surely you don't shoot and i know of at least three people who have had birds of prey shot by farmers i had a friend of mine um a couple of years back his goshawk was shot um as it went to a woodland and he, the guy the guy's gone over and looking for his bird he tracked it because he's got telemetry on the guy's taken the telemetry off the bird but didn't he hadn't turned it off so the guy knew where it, so he found the bird and basically there was a big court thing about that i don't know if he got paid out in the end but uh yeah it happens quite frequently gamekeepers shooting i mean even shooting uh goshawks and buzzards wild ones because they're in pheasant pens yeah. and i mean it's just ridiculous that you think this one animal is going to persecute your yeah. thousands you're going to lose far more to foxes than you ever will to but yeah, it still happens. In and and culturally, it's like, it seems in some areas there's a, you know, once something has been called vermin, 
or whatever they kind of these these weird users culturally people end up thinking that a certain sort of species is bad and needs to go and yeah. it um it's uh, that's quite a hard thing to change when someone's gut feeling yeah, is definitely. that is a horrible animal and it needs you, to go it's hard with with birds of prey because we're at a, a point now so like buzzards are so massively overpopulated now and even the red kite is just so I can remember when we never saw red kites. Like I, when I, yeah, I've they been, were reintroduced. Yeah, I was yeah, yeah. I've been flying yeah. birds of prey since I was twelve years old. You know, yeah. and I can remember never seeing a wild red kite. Now I can take a forty-minute drive up the motorway and I'll see at least twenty. Yeah. You know, and I've been out hunting before and I've seen sixty-eight buzzards in one field just worming. And they those numbers are too large, and there does need to be. Uh, maybe a cull of some sort introduced but then you're caught in a situation where people never want to hear that because it's a bird of prey so it never feels right killing birds of prey so people don't want to hear that but then also you've got the point of if you do introduce some sort of cull or control of birds of prey where does that stop where do people stop shooting where is the forum where people discuss what is the what is the right kind of number That's yeah the thing. exactly so you just end up then with you know if you if you say to a gamekeeper you can shoot X amount of buzzards on your land this year, or a landowner, because the population who monitors how many he's shooting, you've mm-hmm. got to rely on this person ethically saying, yeah, okay, I'll only shoot ten buzzards because we've got fifty here, and they mm-hmm. say it for us. You're just you open up a, a gateway then for a lot of issues, but at the same time, something does need to be done because there is not enough conversation. There's not enough open conversation. That's something that yeah. I was I was constantly coming across. There's like a, there's lots of perceptions of conservationists as being mad greenies with no grip on reality yeah. um, and uh, and a feeling that anyone who hunts or wants to kill anything is just inherently yeah, evil yeah. and um, it doesn't so us at WWT is a conservation charity our founder was a was a wildfowler that's what he started he started as and we have a very pragmatic approach to conservation and and population numbers and the big thing is you know if anything is if you're going to cull anything it needs to be based on sound science and it's got to be monitored um, and uh, ideally, need to have lots of people in a room, but we often struggle with having sensible conversations with, say, hunting organisations, yeah. and even with politicians because the politicians are worried about their kind of about their um, about voters yeah. uh, and and the power of landowners. And um, yeah, we we struggle to to talk with um, with a lot of hunting associations. So it's um, somehow we have to get through that and start yeah. having just it's way just, more sensible it's just such a black and white area as in like <laughs> you're either be, a yes. pro or you're yes and you're not and it shouldn't be there should be yeah. so, like people who aren't hunters should surely understand there's a purpose for hunting there there absolutely is it's not it's not a case of well you don't hunt because you're not putting it in your freezer no, no there has to be some sort of control that people need to understand that and at the same time when a landscape is as managed as britain is then that yeah that is a yeah yeah it's like that we see it so often like the buzzard population has made a massive i don't uh, i don't know on. i don't know what the buzzard population is like and and where but yeah I would, the instant thing we do is like all right if there's a problem sit down with the yeah the the numbers and I think there was a has actually been some um, there's buzzards are now being culled aren't they in some areas uh, I, I think there's a trial I think they've right, started yeah. a trial period now and stuff so something like that needs as long to as, and as long as that is all open and everybody can can look at it and there's a forum to talk about it then yeah. no yeah so I've, I've done conservation work 
with, I've rehabbed buzzards for release before, and I've just done some filming with uh, Martin Cray, who's done some film, mm -hmm. doing some filming for the one show about a buzzard at the moment. So I've yeah. just gone and helped him with that. And I'm mm. very pro the buzzard. I, of course I am. I'm a, I'm a bird of prey enthusiast, and of all the things I've ever done in my life, being a professional MMA fighter, paragliding, etc., my biggest passion in life is birds of prey. It's what mm -hmm. I've done for the longest, the longest part of my life. But you have to be sensible, right? You have to be logical, and you have to be sensible. And lots of people, unfortunately, aren't. Aren't lots of people who are detached from it. Yeah. Aren't sensible. That, that's the big problem. It's yeah. being detached from from meat and from and this assumption that there's the human world and then there's nature that it's got to be separate. It's a similar thing to the whole keeping nature within reserves and not having it out and around. Yeah. It's this feeling that humans are not part of the ecosystem and we are and our kind of you know our, our needs are a part of part of the whole. Uh, equation but it's yeah. it's always going to be fraught with debate so you kind of have to also just love it but love yeah. the people that you're trying to deal with as much as you can even if you kind of hate the fact that they're shooting things um they're under underneath it this is what i found across the whole flyway underneath everybody um most people are really good and most people want to be on the kind of the side the you know want to, want to be on the on the side of the, the good guys wherever they can if you give them an opportunity so we made a point of making it obvious to hunters that we wanted to we wanted to work with them we wanted to hear what was going on if swans were being shot in a particular area is it because there isn't enough information and how do we how do we sort that out um and yeah i, I grew up part of the reason i suppose my attitude is quite open is i grew up in a town um in southern australia where there was hunting we we raised baby wombats and wallabies from their parents kind of being being shot but also it was a, a big sort of fishing town and so yeah. that's kind of part of part of life for me and i'm happy to accept it yeah um, I, and edu like your approach the education approach is bound to be a lot more effective than we'll find you if you get caught shooting or because people hide sh hide shit then you know if you're worried that you're gonna get fined for shooting a an endangered species you're gonna shoot it and hide it you're not gonna it's not necessarily gonna put you off shooting it or if you do shoot it accidentally not then gonna then go and report it or something so I think education is has yeah. to be the better way and something like what you've done is you're reaching such a broad spectrum yeah. of people yeah the positives yeah. are obviously. Yeah, and if um, it needs to be at a point where, say, you know, the the ev there's enough people within the hunting association in a country that are convinced that a population is is in decline, for example, that actually within a hunting group themselves are people going, look, why the hell did you shoot that? Like, that's a yeah. bad thing. It has to become also culturally, um, yeah, a bad thing. But you have to involve people in that. You can't just point fingers and say, don't shoot that, without expecting to having to no, exactly. have to explain it yeah. to them. So, yeah. yeah. So now you are much power motoring for fun, much? I have been stuff? off the motor because of my dislocated you, knee and oh, I've okay. really needed to um, fix it because I think my mum said she dislocated her knee at my age as well and said that she kept dislocating it afterwards and it got worse and worse. So I've been really, um, really gentle with it. Have you been rehabbing or have you seen somebody or...? Um, I have been seeing the local NHS um, oh, new yeah. person, but he oh. keeps telling me he thinks it will eventually get back to normal. It's slightly better than it was. I still can't no, squat, for example. I haven't been back for an MRI. You need to get MRI. Stay away from squats, definitely, just because. When you are in the middle of remote areas, kind of, I thought, how, what on earth would I have done to go to the toilet if I couldn't squat? Like it's kind of awkward. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Yeah, it still feels like there's something. Um, there's something not quite right uh, in there, and I kind of danced 
gently for the first time on Friday night. And only once did I kind of wince when it started to move. So obviously it handled handled a bit all right. And it's handling, yeah. obviously, cycling big distances now to try and build it up. But that might be creating a bit of an imbalance again. Possibly. I mean, I've had knee surgery um, through ligament issues. And I had MR and I had knee surgery. My meniscus cleaned and stuff. And uh, rehabbing that, the NHS were terrible. They literally were like, don't do so many of these. And yeah. she made a bending motion. And do more of these. And she did like a extension motion. I was like, I beg your pardon yeah. and that was the rehab so obviously because of my career I obviously had, knew lots of physios etc so I went and got some good physio but rotational movement in the joint was really big for me because it was yeah. uh, anterior ligament issues so I managed to go and see good physios and get that taken care of and hopefully you know you can well, I, I would say go and see somebody and if you need somebody let me know and I'll find whoever is closest to you I'll put it on my face whoever's closest to where you live I'll talk them into letting you have one free consultation and go and tell them and they can say to you do these exercises even when you're training so that you're not doing the wrong thing you know it's definitely going to be yeah because yeah. for all the will in the world you're only thinking yeah I'll just do some squats because I know that's going to be good for me and then all the time you're putting yourself back so, well I yeah. think my instruction was do all the things that seem uncomfortable oh okay I'm not sure if that is uh, right. I've struggled to do that really um, but hence just some gentle kind of twisting movement because when it does pop out, it's so freaking painful that the yeah, fear yeah. of doing that is quite high. Yeah. But all right, yeah. I, I've uh, I've I've taken that in. I definitely need to go and see someone who really who really cares. Yeah, definitely get get some proper advice. But um, yeah, well, thank you for doing the podcast. Like, it was great talking to you. And I'm I'm ending now not because I've got nothing to talk about because I just know we just <laughs> go off on a tangent I want to hear about the free diving growing up in Australia there's so much more that I want to talk about but I feel like you just get we lose the first part then you know so we definitely have to do this again because there's so much more to to learn about who you are and your sense of adventure so we'll definitely do this again but this was great thank, thank you very you. much thank you thank you oh, actually before we go is there anybody who you want to who helped you you'd like to say thank you for any sponsors any trusts that you'd like to promote anybody like that before we go and Oof. all the random people along the flyway who stepped in so before I left when I knew I didn't have this Russian permission for example I had to go to Moscow first hoping to find some people um, I ended up at a point where I realized we had so many friends I felt like a stage diver that's how I described it I knew we didn't have some key things in place but I also felt like I was a stage diver and I could just kind of I was about to launch myself off into this project but somebody would be there to kind of catch me if it was all falling apart and that's what happened again and again and again when everything anything went wrong people turned up out of nowhere so that was just vaguely to um, to anybody who had anything to do with it um, people in the ground crew that were kind of hidden in lots of the media coverage so the mechanic the um, medic that was with us the other paramotorists in each country that came and flew with me um, they were absolutely brilliant. It was, there were, but there would be hundreds of people if I listed them all. In terms of sponsorship, Randall Fines putting his name to the project, and then agreeing to be a patron, and then putting in seven and a half grand. That was the biggest don individual donation from anybody. Um, that was huge and opened lots of other doors. Judy Dench, who um, took me up on the kind of, I, I wrote and said. You know, we're vaguely related, and um, I already had, sorry, David Attenborough, he was brilliant to stick his name to it as well. Um, but I could say to Judy, we already have Ranoff Fines, and we've got David Attenborough, and we've got a couple of other British adventurers, but the Russians have never heard of them. 
um, and they all watch James Bond films and they totally adore you and we're kind of related um, is there any chance I know you had nothing to do with swans in the past but would you be interested in uh, in being a patron and uh, she said well how could I possibly say no I'm very busy but how could I possibly say no as we're related and um, she ended up being really quite important for us in Russia. Some of the media pieces were like a third about Judy Dench and wow. the other two thirds were about the kind of Project and Swans. And in Lithuania, I got huge amounts of coverage because I was reported as Baroness Sasha Dench, member of the royal family. And I was like, how on earth have you got that story? And I was like, well, you're related to Judy Dench and she's a dame, so she must be royalty. So we figured <laughs> that you must be royalty as well. So, um, you know, she couldn't give any of her time, but, um, you know, still was, was really powerful. And I think that's just um, and a, a kind of a message to anyone who's listening, who's got kind of a mad idea of something they want to do, that a big part of it was, um, a big part of my approach was, if you have a good idea, your cause is really good, like you're never really going to fail. You're going to, even in preparing the project, if it doesn't happen, you will have talked to a lot of people, you will have potentially sparked somebody else's idea. Just kind of, you know, go for it and ask for help wherever you can and people will appear out of nowhere. As long as your project is coming from the right place and is a really good idea. And accept all the criticism. So I took every single bit of criticism as a, a bit of information. So I had to basically, anyone, all the paramotors, for example, who told me there was no way I could do it. I took every, every one of those criticisms, I was like, right, what are they actually saying? And do I believe it? And how can I get around it? Do I agree? It, if it hurts, it's generally because they're probably a little bit right. Yeah. And so I took every single piece of that as, you know, their contribution to the project as opposed to, to it being a, you know, a real kind of slap down or anything. Um, so they were the criticisms were as valuable as the kind of pats on the back. Yeah, people take criticism too, uh, too to heart, and then they can't. I mean, if you're, you're going to get criticised, you can't stop people criticising you. But if no. you can find the positives within the criticism, is is now positive. Your criticism is now something positive, you know. So yeah, yeah. people don't do that enough. Yeah, and uh, and also dropping the ego. So I had to. Uh, there were so many things that could have gone wrong that would have made me look really stupid. If I hadn't managed to do this trip, there was a really high chance I would something would go wrong. My dislocated knee, if I hadn't been able to fly the trike, that would have been the end of it. Lots of things could have made me look stupid. I just had to get to a point where I was like, it's not about me, it's gonna be about the swans and I'm just kind of a figurehead doing it. And if people, you know, if I do look like a failure or I stuff up in some way, I'll try my best not to, but that's not really the point. It's like, it's low down in the list of priorities. The main thing is doing something about, about the swans. And, um, and so I had backups of, you know, if I did fail, who could step in and, and take, take it on? How could we fulfill the trip still, even if I'm not even a part of it? Which is a really hard thing in the beginning to think, you know, I have my baby so much of my time and effort, but we had to have that as a yeah. as a backup because it wasn't about wasn't about me. So that wasn't about me. It's kind of it hurts a bit, but it's um it's also really powerful. Yeah, cool. So how can people stay in touch? Is there like a a website? Do you have an Instagram, a Twitter, anything you want to put out there for people to stay in touch? I've been a bit of a hermit for the last six months while I kind of sort um, sort out my life and. Um, next projects and things but I um, so website has not yet come to fruition or well, website for me personally hasn't come yeah. to fruition there is a Flight of the Swans website Flight of the Swans Facebook that has all of our kind of previous content yeah. on it and Sasha at SashaDench.com is my email address if anybody wants to contact me and ask anything I feel like I owe the the world um, any advice that I can give because so many people gave it to me and I'm, I'm really happy to talk about 
talk yeah. about things. I, I am also on Twitter as Sasha Dent. I'm really easy to find, but I yeah. Uh, yeah, get in touch, like help out and contribute as much as you can and help you with your next one. Perfect. Well, again, thank you very much, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again soon. Thanks.